Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I've got Ben Mazur, and we're going to talk about a few things that have to do on the interface of social media and the week's news. And I've also got Tem Bendapudi, and we're going to be talking about Caplicizumab, the new drug for TTP. Is it really standard of care? Should it be? Who should decide? You won't want to miss this discussion. And first, I have a bit of a monologue, but I ran out of time, so I won't be able to say all that I think. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MDMPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I planned a lengthy monologue, but you know, the week got out of my control. And so I really wanted to talk a little bit about the Scott Atlas censoring moment on Twitter. Twitter, of course, removed a tweet by Scott Atlas where he voiced his view that masks don't work. I think it bothered me not as someone who supports Scott Atlas, but as someone who believes that, you know, the right way to combat speech you disagree with is to argue why you believe it is incorrect. The wrong way is to remove it. And I ended up in a longer discussion with someone who was a big proponent that we should remove these kind of anti-masks or anything that was in any direction other than rah-rah-rah masks. Um, and this person said that, you know, it could lead to bad things happening to people. Well, it turns out every medical controversy proponents believe that it could lead to bad things happening to people. So one other example that I tossed at this person was, what do you think about mammograms? This person said, mammograms save lives. I said, oh, really? It's interesting to me. By lives, you mean breast cancer-related mortality? Sure. And and then I said, somebody saying that mammograms don't save lives potentially is going to make a woman decide not to do it. That could lower the survival of women in your worldview if you believe that it saves lives. And this person said, yeah. And then just when I was about to lock this person into the trap and ask if they would censor such speech on Twitter, somebody interrupted and I, I couldn't do it. So I got distracted. But my point is that, of course, mammograms don't save lives. There's no clear evidence in pooled analyses that it lowers all-cause death. And there is a reduction in breast cancer-specific mortality, but for a number of reasons we've discussed on prior episodes of this podcast, that's insufficient. One, there may be miscoding. Two, it doesn't fully capture the off-target effects. So here's a great example, though. People debate. People don't agree. Some people think it saves lives. Some people think it doesn't. If you think it saves lives, of course, any speech to the contrary may cost lives. Similarly, in the mask situation. But the right way to handle that in a scientific and academic setting is to win the war of ideas. It's not to censor your opponent. And paradoxically, I fear 
that if you delete Scott Atlas's tweet, more people are going to be dragging their feet in the anti-mask camp. It's really going to work against you. Anyway, I can't go on and on. This is supposed to be a longer monologue, but I made me think about something called a range of reasonable views. And this article is coming out, hopefully, by the time you hear this podcast, it'll be out on MedPage today. You should check this article out. It's called Range of Reasonable Views. And it reminds us that in the age of COVID, nobody knows all the answers. There's no randomized control trial of mask mandates in a politically divided country with a leader who is a former reality TV show star in the midst of a global pandemic where everything shut down. There is no such randomized trial. So all of us have to approach every issue with just a little bit of humility and realize that we may not know all the answers. And in such an environment, maybe we should be willing to hear people who disagree with us a little bit. And maybe if we think we can silence our way to solutions, maybe... That's kind of an anti-American idea, and it's really sort of against a lot of the principles in, in this country. So read this article, a range of ideas, and just consider for a moment that there might be an importance to hearing people out. So on that positive note, we're going to turn to Ben Mazur. You won't want to miss this discussion. I start with a doozy. Let's see how Ben handles it. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Ben Mazur. Dr. Mazur is an instructor in pathology, currently at the Johns Hopkins University. He is a pathologist, and he is someone that will be well-known to many people on medical Twitter. He is a very thoughtful commenter, particularly at the intersection of the media, social media, and medicine. Dr. Mazur, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller, so <laughs> it's very nice. Terrific to have you. So... You know, I uh, I follow you with interest over the years, and we have many overlapping areas, which I hope we're going to talk about, particularly cancer screening and overdiagnosis and those sorts of issues. And uh, along that, along those fronts, um, you wrote sort of an article that I really enjoy about um, about overdiagnosis uh, with Gil Welch and having a month for overdiagnosis. No, no, that was by you, but you wrote it yourself. A month for overdiagnosis awareness. We'll talk about that. Um, but I'm wondering if I will talk. We'll start by talking about. Is it fair to say? You know, you're a social media guru. Uh, maybe not a guru, but you you have some savviness with the platform. Uh, social media. Yeah, you know, I started using it around when I was discussing things with doctor about Dr. Oz and medical school. I, you know, was very oh, critical. Oh, that's right. Of, he was an imbecile. Yeah. Um, he said yeah, a lot of stupid very, shit. Isn't that fair to say? He still does, really. I, I've sort of stopped paying attention, luckily. I, I presume he still says that. I think he's... he's um, even become a COVID expert, but who uh, isn't these days? Who isn't? I've seen a lot of COVID experts on Twitter. Um, but you, you were you were part of. The, oh, I, now I remember. I've forgotten this whole Doctor Oz thing. But you were you pushed hard on him to 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 face some reprimands for the crazy things he was saying. Well, yeah, I was I was involved with the AMA. I thought it was a really interesting organization, and I thought they were in a position to kind of um, take a public stand and sort of help help the image of, of medicine and, yeah. and sort of add some scientific rigor to kind of the way people view us and say that we'll call out, you know, we'll call out a, a, f a famous doctor if he's kind of spewing a bunch of nonsense. You know, the medical profession does care about that. Sure. Um, you know, but I guess, it, but it wasn't a pandemic and so no one really cared. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, took, it took a year of work, but the AMA did come out with some kind of policy recommendations, you know, for how, how doctors should speak in the media. Um, I think maybe 
Yeah, some people could be reading them now during COVID. But oh, it's yeah. about focusing on your area of expertise, uh-huh. uh, expressing uncertainty. You know. Yeah, I, I fought a year to get these things written. And, and they were very thoughtful guidelines. And then when they came out, a bunch of doctors were like, well, this is so obvious. Yeah. And it's so generic. And I was but, like, but they've all been violated now. I mean, talking about your expertise, COVID, that, 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 that's gone. Um, expressing uncertainty, COVID, are you, are you kidding me? Get out of here. There's no uncertainty. We know exactly what to do, and we know who's wrong. Who are the bad guys? Who are the good guys? Yeah. So, I mean, and the other thing was, was you know, making sure you disclose conflicts of interest. And oh, that's well. become a lot more complicated in the COVID era. It's a confluence I mean, no one, of interest. Not a lot of people have financial conflicts, but... Yes. Um, well, no, well, some people do, actually. They run these consulting firms, and they're doing a lot of a couple thousand dollar an hour consulting on the side um, for governments, local municipalities. They don't disclose that. Um, and if you're doing a lot of consulting on how to safely reopen, one would imagine that you have a interest in creating a certain narrative around the risks of reopening. I mean, I, I think that that would be plausible, but we don't have to go there. This is not this. I wasn't I wasn't taking you in this direction. I was I was just wanted to say that, you know, you're somebody who I think of is savvy when it comes to social media. You're also uh, younger than me, so I assume people younger than me are more savvy with these things. Um, but you put your I'm foot not in. That much <laughs> not that much. You're pretty young. <laughs> nah. You're just accomplished. No, well, uh, that's in the eye of the beholder. Some people would say have uh, have done a lot of problematic things. Um, but but the reason I said all this complimentary stuff is just to just to bring up the fact that you put your foot in it recently on social media, and that's what I wanted to talk about. Oh, geez. You, you tweeted a list of people to follow, Ben Mazur. You tweeted a list of people to follow, and you said, you know, I like to follow these, and I don't know what it was, 10 accounts. And it was, I think, John Mandrola, it was me, as Venk Morthy, it was some other people. I forget exactly. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't actually remember the exact list. I kind of just picked some people you pick uh, some, that yeah. I liked. That's how, you, that's how you got yourself in trouble, because of yeah. the people you picked, like 11 were men and one was a woman, something like that. Yeah, that I, that turned out to, to be the case, uh, and some people were very critical of that. Um, and I I was sorry. I think um, I was <laughs> I, I was very non thoughtful in tweeting out the list. I just picked a bunch of people and uh, didn't really give much thought to the composition because uh, I follow you know what a thousand people on Twitter, and I I like maybe a hundred of them. I don't know why I follow the other nine hundred, but I do. But, you know, I like like a hundred of them and I, I picked some people probably that had recently tweeted some things that I liked and, um, you know, mostly people who do a lot of writing, uh, you know, whose essays I read, you know, and I don't know, I had some criteria in my head that I didn't actually make explicit. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, I think it was a good lesson that you got to actually be thoughtful about this stuff, although people were quite critical. Uh, I got a lot of messages, so. You're a misogynist, is what you were basically told. Uh, I, I don't think people use those words, but you know, I, I think I, I mean social media is a bit of a minefield, and I I don't want to say that that those critiques were without merit, because if you're gonna start, you know, I mean, absolutely, you know, the way people do these things thoughtlessly, they create lists, they pick, you know, the media journalists, they pick people who to interview, you know, for their stories. They just kind of pick who's around or pick who's prominent or pick who their friends recommend. And none of these things are malicious. I mean, all that's like a normal way to go about finding people to talk to or people to promote. But it, but it does show that sort of the structural bias. I mean, that, that if the first, you know, if you go around and ask your friends who you should 
talk to for an for an interview, you know, for, and they all recommend a bunch of white guys, you know, you'll interview a bunch of white guys, and that just perpetuates the issue. So, actually, I, I do think, in that sense, it, you know, I did put my foot in it, and um, it it does show you have to be thoughtful about these things. I want I want to unpack it a little bit with you because I thought it was so interesting. Um, you apologized actually, and uh, that's obviously a rookie mistake online. When you apologize, you never an apology is never good enough to satisfy everybody. It's always going to fall short. Um, I actually think that that's really problematic because if we don't accept apologies, then people will stop giving apologies. And we have a great example of that in the highest office, a man who has probably never apologized for a thing in his life. But I guess the thing I want to unpack a little bit up with you is because I think I agree a lot with you about the sort of structural biases um, that are present in the system. And we can talk about you know, one way that might manifest itself is if you look at all the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and you say, boy, they all look the same, right? You know, they're mostly white men. If you look at the deans of universities, if you look at presidents of universities, if you look at department chairs, if you look at the people quoted in the New York Times, that's an institution, the New York Times. Um, and there are these sorts of biases that probably represent the product of lots of different problems in the system. But I think let's come to where you are on this spectrum you're not the New York Times, you're not Time Magazine, you're just some random person on the internet. No offense, you're somebody who I like, and that's why we're going to talk for the next... Uh, no. I'm, I'm a certified rando. You're a certified sure. rando. You're a certified rando. <laughs> you're just a random person on the internet. And, and you're just tweeting a list, one tweet, of just names to follow. You're not picking the department chair. You're not picking the provost. Do you have that obligation to diversify your list of picks, do you have an obligation even to think twice about it? Somebody pointed out, I think you pointed out, you just hit the at symbol and these were the names you had interacted with most recently. And somebody said that even that is a problem, right? That's telling. You're interacting with mostly men. But to be honest, you're, in a, you're interacting with, uh, I would say it was certainly multiracial, uh, the list. I mean, it wasn't mostly white men. I think it was probably mostly mostly. Indian children of Indian immigrants like myself. I mean, I think that's, I mean, if there were to be a bias, I think it would be heavily, if there were to be sort of a mismatch, it would be the, 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 the cardiologist mismatch, too many, too many Indian Americans. Um, how do you think about that? I mean, I'm really curious. Um, do you have the same obligation of the, as the New York Times in your tweet that you made with 10 seconds of thinking and that honestly has how much influence in the world, modicum? I'm honestly shocked you like read this and remember this to be, I mean, this is sort of like ancient internet history. What is this like a uh, two months ago, three months ago? Yes. Anyway, I think it was pre COVID. It was. Yeah. Back when, wow. back when the most offensive thing on the internet pre COVID was remember that guy, that white guy who said he didn't like Indian food and he, they hung him for that. They hung him for that. He, he said he didn't like Indian food and they got him. That was the, that was the worst back then. Now, of course we have masks and we have all these other things to get angry about. Yeah. But back then it was, he didn't like Indian food. Um, you know, I, I think, I think I got a really, I mean, a lot of people were critical, but I got a really, a, a range of ways people were critical, right? Yes. There are people that I think followed me and I've interacted with who I don't really know personally, but I've interacted with them on Twitter and I know who they are sort of, and they provided, you know, really thoughtful responses saying like, I'm sure you didn't mean anything by this, but you know, I think you probably could have been a little more careful or, you know, could have could have used, you know, your followers to promote, you know, more women. And, you know, I'd, I'd just really appreciate if you could be a little more thoughtful, something like that, where, you know, they were pointing out something that 
was hurtful to them in a way that they were trying to be very respectful. And I, I'm, you know, that was, I was extremely open to that and I, I didn't feel attacked. I didn't feel, you know, you like, were open to it. I, I mean, they, I felt like they were, they absolutely had the best interests of everyone in mind and they were going about it in a really careful way. Do, do you agree um, with I, that but, though? Do you, do you agree that it is the duty of every individual person to promote in their narrow sphere of influence social, racial, gender, diversity, broadly? I think if you can, you should. I, uh -huh. I you know, I, I know a lot more women physicians. Again, I was focusing mostly on writer, you know, physician writers. Sure. Physician women writers who I could You could have included. Promoting. Absolutely. What about you know, ideological so diversity? Do you have a duty to do that? Um... I, I don't know. I try not to follow people that, you know, I disagree with. I know. I, that I, yeah. Just, That's what I'm trying to, yeah. I, I try to follow between like one and three people I really disagree with, and then I kind of like hate read their <laughs> tweets. <laughs> me too. Me too. And then, you know, I, but, you know, that way it's like only one in a hundred or one in a thousand tweets is something that you know you're going to, you can't stand. And then after a couple months, I stop following them. But um, let me ask you another question. If I yeah. were to go back and follow you like a stalker, and I would see the last 10 people you had dinner with or coffee with, do you think it's equally distributed between men and women? Uh, well, this would be pre-COVID because I don't have sure, I don't have dinner and coffee with anyone right now. But um, no, it probably wouldn't be. I don't, I don't think so. Um, and I, I don't know what that means, actually. I've never really thought of that. That's, uh, this is what I'm playing into. I'm, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I have the answers. And I, I'm, I'm really kind of trying to, try, try to talk it out with you a little bit. Because um, I acknowledge that that is a problem, you know, as I, as I stated, for deans, for professorships, for chairs, for, you know, so many spheres of life where you, you, want, you want it to look as diverse as everybody but if you were to look in my phone book, if you were looking at your phone book, um, I'm a, I guess, am I middle age? I'm 37. Is that middle age or no? It uh, depends how hard you live your life. You know, you could be halfway <laughs> over. But. So I hope I'm still young, but I don't know. Uh, middle age, straight American man. That's me in a nutshell. Um, uh, uh, who are children of immigrants. Um, I'm 100% sure that if you took everybody who fit that demographic, that there would be a bias in their phone book, friend circle. They have more male friends than female friends. I just simply, that's just simply a fact. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, com you know, I'm so, I'm gay. So, I mean, growing up, I mostly had women friends because a bunch of straight guys in high school and middle school were not the most progressive, sure. you know, open-minded people in the world. And, and it tended to be women who I could get along with better. Now, as I've gotten older and probably the world, or at least America, has changed, yes. you know, I have probably just as many straight guy friends, gay guy friends, you know, straight and gay women friends. I mean, you know, it's changed a lot. I think that was just a product of whatever, being an adolescent. Um, so it has changed. Uh, you know, I think the problem, it, I, some of it depends on your perspective of, um, diversity and representation and um, I think all you know I do think about things through the lens of race and gender and sexuality yes I think that would be completely ignorant to ignore the power of these things these are these are cultural these are long-standing cultural um, mechanisms that people have used for oppression and but you know you also have to think about power structures within medicine 
which are kind of its own separate things. So the thing that really, I mean, the only thing that really upset me about this whole ordeal, besides me being embarrassed and feeling bad that I had done something that I wouldn't, you know, if you had asked me would I be this biased and, and uh, promote mostly men, I would have said no, and then I did it. So it was a little embarrassing. But the thing was when a bunch of, you know, very prominent, you know, tenured physician professors started tweeting at me and being, frankly, you know, pretty insulting, um, not very sensitive uh, to my position. That, I, I didn't know how to react to that. I had a lot of emotions because, you know, I, if I deserve to be called out, whatever, I mean, I guess I deserve to be called out. But it also felt very strange. I I'd, had I, I don't think I'd even finished residency yet. I no, think I was in my, like, last couple months of residency. So I was still technically a resident, although I was on my way out the door. And... Um, you know, these like associate and full professors uh, were, you know, basically saying I'd failed and, and this is like an example of, you know, white men who, uh, you know, don't don't promote diversity and, and maybe critiques in, you know, in fact were correct, but it felt it felt very hard to be attacked by people who were more powerful than me in medicine. You know, I didn't know them. They didn't know me. These are not actually even people I'd ever really interacted with on Twitter. I don't know how it got to them. But uh, somebody pointed out that to me that are they aware of the fact that this is a gay medical trainee who they are accusing of not being sensitive to know what it's like to be an outsider when I when he must deeply know what it's like to be an outsider because that's never been an easy that's never been easy shoes to walk in in medicine which is really historically conservative field yeah some of that's true and and you know but i don't want to make it like gay versus women versus you know racial exactly. minority but i but i do think the power structures in medicine are real and yes. you know i I'd just gone through you know med school and residency where you clearly have a hierarchy and um, you know, frankly, social media is kind of a place where the hierarchy breaks down a little usually. Yes. And people, you know, I interact with really prominent physicians and on social media all the time. You know, um, it's usually a kind of equal footing or at least they're very receptive to what you have to say. It's it's not necessarily the same as in sort of the real world hospital setting where uh, you're never supposed to even really ask innocent questions sometimes to, to your superiors. So... I'm used to that kind of social media interaction, but then I guess it's sort of, I wasn't expecting the reverse. You know, I guess I was kind of expecting prominent physicians with a lot of money and power to um, to be a little more respectful to me because I'm a trainee and maybe, you know, if you're going to criticize me, do it in kind of a pedagogical way, you know, not in a, I'm going to just attack this rando on the internet kind of way. That's, I mean, that's one of the things that I was struck with was, I mean, the attacks, they, I mean, you, you got a lot of pushback, more than I thought was warranted for a tweet that had a shelf life of about 15 seconds, you know, no one's going to Until look you brought it up again. No, well, I'm bringing it up. Yeah, I, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep bringing it up. Um, well, and then the other thing you mentioned was, and I think this is true, you hit the at symbol, you know, you typed at on your, um, on your, in your tweet, in your tweet, and it, Twitter will prompt you with the accounts you most frequently interacted with. And I think it's possible that you've, you've picked those accounts you've interacted with for all these sort of unconscious bias reasons. It's possible. But when I look at that list, I see a different theme that emerges. There are not many accounts of people in biomedicine who question established medical practices. You're one of them. I think I'm one of them. 
Vink Morthy's one of them. John Mandrola is one of them. The people on your list, I think, had an ideological theme. It's a, a niche market. It's a boutique market. A handful of people who really question medical practices. That was the theme of your tweet. Um, these are the accounts you're interacting with. So I guess one of the pushbacks you got was, why are these the accounts you're interacting with? That itself represents bias. But I wasn't sure that that's the diagnosis. I felt like you're interacting with these accounts because they're talking about a set of issues that you're interested in. It happens to be, in this one case, it happens to be that they're mostly men, that they're mostly Indian men. To be honest with you, the, dis the, the change in population from the average American population to your list, uh, white men are severely underrepresented as a proportion of the population. They're severely underrepresented. Indian men, you know, <laughs> they're severely probably 20-fold overrepresented. Women may be underrepresented, of course, um, and maybe other minority groups may be underrepresented. Um, but I guess, I guess, I guess I'm really struck by... They were all straight, by the way, I think. I don't know. I, don't, I, guess, I can't yeah. really tell on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's a little gay on Twitter, but I think, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess. But I think they're all straight. I think they're all straight, too. I mean, I, well, I don't know. Actually, I try not to get too deep into people's personal lives. But um, that, that's possible. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to articulate is this sentiment that both things can be true. It can be true that institutions and people in positions of power and authority ought to do their best to make sure our, our, our faculty, our staff, our, 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 our research groups are as broad and representative as possible. I believe that. I'm a progressive. I do believe that that's true. And I think that's a deficiency. At the same time, it is possible that every instance that occurs in the world where one, as you say, rando, where one rando tweets a list, it is possible that every instance that occurs in the world where there is an imbalance in gender or race or sexual orientation or, you know, whatever you want to put there, um, it's possible that not all of those represent bias. Some of those represent other things that are driving that that you may not fully appreciate. And I think if I were to speculate on Twitter, the biggest thing that's hard to put your hands around is the sort of ideas and content that people offer. You know, I think one of the accounts you tweeted was Bartles. You don't know anything about Bartles. You don't know if Bartles is a man or a woman or what. Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't think I. I don't know if I tweeted that one. Uh, I. I might have been, but I think. But, uh, well, I, I can't even remember. It's. Like, I know. To be honest, I, I, I Lisa don't... Rosenbaum was the woman. She, you know, she's what she's a correspondent for the New England Journal of Medicine, and, and she I think extremely thoughtful essays in in the journal. I, I guess um, I want I, to say something more than that. The, the 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 theme that unites Lisa Rosenbaum, John Mandrola, myself, it's not that we're thoughtful essayists. There's millions of thoughtful essayists. That's what I want to articulate. There are millions of thoughtful essayists, and that's why I think people were going to fault you a little bit. There are not many people who are commenting, Lisa's one of them, on the intersection of money, medicine, medical decisions, specific medical decisions like stenting or not stenting. There are not many people that fit in that boat. Um, and I think the theme of your little list was that. And so I guess the idea I'm trying to articulate is that if, if one looks for a perfect distribution in every tweet that exists in the universe and in the absence of that perfect distribution assumes that the person is biased, 
I think that that is not, one, it might not be true. I think in this particular case, it is inaccurate. Like you are, it is not the product of bias. You may be biased for other reasons, I don't know. But this is not the product of bias. It's a product of something else. And two, it's not even desirable. It's not what we should be doing. And then three, I would say it's not productive. It doesn't help the cause. In fact, it's a distraction. It makes people out there who say, you know, when, when we talk about the need for having leadership in academic medicine be diverse, if they also see that you're trying to enforce that Ben Mazur's tweet is not diverse, there are a lot of people who are going to lose, you know, they're going to fall out of the camp, right? We want to build a consensus. So those are just my thoughts on it. I think the reason it stuck with me, sort of like a pebble in my shoe, was that I did felt you were wronged. I mean, you were a trainee and there were senior people who were, you know, I think sort of inappropriate. Well, I, you know, yeah. I, I do think you're, you're right. You can go too far, far in this and, and maybe, you know, maybe, you know, it was just a thematic, you know, I was just hitting on people that write about certain things, exactly. and so it didn't have bias. But I think actually, you know, these things kind of interact with each other. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I was a huge computer nerd. I went to, I, I was like the youngest person at these like Linux user groups. It was a bunch of like 50 year olds and me. Loser. So, you know, it was a bunch of like mostly <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 50, and I was like 12, but it was like, you know, a bunch of 50 year old white guys, you know, hippies who, who you know, love tinkering with computers. And um, so, you know, but the thing is, like, and that was, you know, whatever, it was an interest group, right? It was based on our common interest in geeky stuff. Uh, but why was it mostly men when I went to this group? Like, you know, and it, frankly, it's because there is bias. Like, why, why were there mostly men, you know, involved in computers and technology? And, you know, was this really geeky group of guys, you know, who are all awkward and whatever, you know, were they frankly not welcoming to women or even outright sexist? Um, you know, th there wasn't a good reason why it should be mostly men, but it was. And so I think there, you know, there was bias. And so you have to ask yourself, I mean, whatever, I, I just picked a bunch of people and I have no, I, I've never done any kind of survey about what the sort of evidence-based medicine community's makeup is. But if it is mostly a certain kind of person and it's not very representative of the rest of medicine at least, um, you have to wonder if maybe there is something about this community that is driving people away. So actually, it's an interesting combination. You know, I, I read an article last year uh, that was a bit critical of, you know, cancer overdiagnosis and advocates of cancer overdiagnosis. And one of the things in the article, besides, it mostly talked about, you know, the evidence for, like, mammography mostly, you know, and whether mammograms and, and screening led to cancer overdiagnosis and breast cancer. And, you know, most of it was a discussion of the evidence, and, and this writer fell on one side, and I might fall on another side. But then there was a whole section in the article about how it seems like some of the most prominent proponents of evidence-based medicine, you know, dogma or overdiagnosis dogma, have gotten into trouble. Either they've had personal problems, social problems, they've gotten into trouble, you know, in academic ways. And I, it really stuck out with me in this article. I remember the that, article. You know, yeah, go on. mostly, you know, mostly whatever a discussion of the evidence that re, you know people really do disagree about. That it put that personal thing in, and um, even if the facts of their personal case were true, which uh, you know I don't I don't remember the details. I remember um, very well, too well. But yeah, but do, does should that matter? And I've, I've actually, this is something that's been a pebble of my shoe I've been thinking about because at first you're like, no, this shouldn't matter. Like if some, you know, asshole says something scientifically accurate, it doesn't completely make the scientifically accurate thing uh, wrong, although they're probably a bad messenger for it. But then, 
you have to think that if this is a very strange community that is full of outcasts and people who maybe start uh, associating with kind of fringe ideas, um, you know, because there are absolutely, there, there is a non-zero overlap between some so-called, you know, evidence-based medicine hardliners and anti-vaccine people, and now in the COVID era, maybe even some anti-mask people. I mean, you, you know, these aren't, communities aren't completely separate, and um, so here's some fringes, here, I here's some thoughts I have no for you. Overlap. Yeah, here's some yeah. thoughts I have for you. One, I guess I would say I would define your the theme of your list a little different than EBM, which is just a massive sort of space. There's some there's something else. I, I I might be doing a bad job articulating it, but I bet if one were to diagram interactions for years on Twitter for years on content, I mean. Let me put it to you another way. One can imagine, what if every account on Twitter was just a color, like just red, green, blue, some random color, and just an anonymous name? Um, and, and so the interactions were 100% separated from the identity of the people who are having interactions. I suspect there would be something about these accounts that you named that they are interacting more often. Because they're not talking about just EBM concepts. They're talking about really, really in the weeds kind of concepts. I mean, I so I, I want to say there is a theme to your list. I can't articulate it well. I might be doing a bad job. Okay, then the next thing I want to say, so, so, so I guess I would say that, so one of the things that I think some of your critics were missing in this moment was they didn't know that this is a network of people that talk about a bunch of papers, such as the papers Lisa was writing in those years. She hasn't written those same kind of papers, but you remember the three-part series on conflict of interest and, and then her paper on why less is more is actually problematic, I think. That though, so it was less is more. But they were of, beautifully written. I mean, absolutely. You know, I don't well, I agree with some of it, disagree with some of it. I thought they were fabulous. I, I, I think that her talent is is the artful presentation of, of the material as a writer. I think that's a talent. I mean, I will give her a lot of credit for that. It's a very artfully presented um, set of articles. So I would agree with you. And I think that's why um, it struck such a chord for those of us who disagreed about the technical merits of the argument was that when you package something so beautifully, it may be seductive to people. And that's why, you know, that's why we argued. I mean, if it was something that was poorly written and no one read, we wouldn't have argued. Now, let me... Um, so I, so I do think that there was something about your list that didn't have to do with the racial makeup or even the gender makeup of this particular group. The second thing I would say is I do think there's a barrier to entry into this particular group. And I think that barrier is that it's not good for your career. It's really not good for your career to be in this group. You're not going to get promoted. You're, you're going to be pushed out of institutions. You're going to have to find new jobs. Um, it's not going to be easy for you. And, and then related to that, Maybe there are some psychological predispositions that make one the kind of person, you know, I always, some people always ask me, like, what does it take to be a good um, academic researcher? They're like, you have to be really smart. And I always want to say, like, smart is one thing, but defiant is another personality trait that, that helps. Because if you really want to question status quo, you have to be a little bit defiant, a little bit stubborn, a little bit, you know, I don't know, it's, I'm, it's, I'm trying to wrap my hands, hands around this nebulous thing of, like, being able to say that, like, all you people who believe this, like, I, I don't see eye to eye with you. And to have the courage to say that, especially now on Twitter, we see that a lot of times a lot of people just don't want to comment. Okay, then the last thing I'd say before I let you have the floor again, um, you talk about that article where the author of that article alleged that amongst people critical of, I believe it was mammography, the two of those individuals had some sort of unflattering professional personal story. One of them did something in sort of a semi-professional personal context that was really 
horrible, like sort of like a one in a hundred year century flood, like the worst thing you could think about, you know, that that was one of them. And the other one did something that was uh, an academic thing that was within the stock and trade of academics that I think to this day he feels differently about than the other people feel, um, but nevertheless was sort of a professional reprimand. But I think that that article cherry picked those two examples and there were, you know, there's not many people, but there's still 20 other people in the space who have never done anything personally problematic. And I think that article was using that um, in a misleading way because that article, the author of the article, feels strongly that screening should be done and overdiagnosis is overblown. And then the author seized upon the fact that by chance, you know, two instances occurred where two people were discredited uh, personally, unrelated to this, the content. And they use that as an opportunity to say that, you know, this whole field is bad. I don't know. I'll let you have the floor. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, again, I, I think actually, you know, the the interactions between sort of ideological and social communities and this these kinds of other issues of representation and diversity, yes. I don't I don't think they're separate, you know, and, um, you know, the, the beauty of the Internet and social media is that you can find a niche community. I mean, there's a lot of people in medicine that are skeptical of one drug or treatment or one screening methodology yes. or one little thing. I mean, not everyone is a cheerleader. Not everyone is a blind, you know, a blind follower. There's a lot of thoughtful, critical people in medicine who can take a evidence-based look at something and see both sides of the argument. I think there's a lot of that. There's not necessarily, though, I think, tons of people who get really passionate about it. Like, uh, you know, I write about these things and I talk about these things and I think about these things uh, because I really care. And I mean, I'm I'm passionate about it. I don't I haven't made any kind of lucrative career out of it. Um, you know, I, I just care about it. And frankly, I don't think there are a lot of people that care that much, at least not about it as sort of a broad field of study. They may, I agree. They may be critical of one thing or another, which is I great. Agree. I mean, that's all I really ask. I don't I don't want everyone to be some kind of a zealot. Um, so when you, when you have that kind of passion or that interest, you know, you, the internet's great because you can find these kinds of people. I mean, you know, I got involved in social media because that's where journalists were and I was, you know, talking about Dr. Oz and then, you know, and I'm a writer and I like talking to journalists and then I found all these evidence-based medicine people that, uh, you know, I had read some blogs and articles as I was, as I was going through my education, but then this was obviously much more interactive, right? I could even, right. I could respond to some of the people whose blogs I'd read, right. which frankly, when you're like a young guy is kind of cool. Yes, you know, if you cool. really, you can interact with them and it turns out they're just people. <laughs> right. Um, and so that was really nice because I found this niche community and I have been on social media for a few years and, um, so you're right in that maybe I was just picking out people in this sort of back and forth community of people that are just really passionate about this, and this is the kind yes, of thing that's what you were doing. Tweet right about that's what you were doing. Um, I know, I know that's what you but, were doing. I that's my diagnosis. But go on, go on. But you have to be careful because yes, you're right. This is generally an under a non powerful community in. Uh, it's the worst, and that's medicine. the other side. It's non powerful. Not only non powerful. You want to talk about. I mean, I don't want to get into all the sort of personal things that I've endured and others I know, but you, you put a target on your back. You join this community, the, the community of people who want to say that something and a lot of things are just not helping people. You put a target on your back. Go on. I interrupted you. Yeah. So, uh, well, I, I do agree with you. I mean, I think, I think the majority of responses I personally get when I talk about these things I'm passionate about is that people don't care. Yes. Um, they're just apathetic, which is fine, you know, but 
But in some sense, you know, you have to look at both sides. This isn't also a powerless community. This is a bunch of physicians. Some of these people have achieved very prominent positions. And, you know, uh, <laughs> so I, you know, I have this, I had this one like reply guy who used to like, reply to every one of my tweets with just like hating it. Every article I wrote, he, he read it yeah. and then he didn't like it. And then he told me he didn't like it. And yeah. no yeah. one has to like everything I write. I know. But, but it was why just do you have like, to go out of your way to tell you know, me. Every right. By the fifth time, or yeah. sixth or seventh article you've read of mine that you don't like, you should probably just stop reading them because you don't like what I write. And I totally respect that. Anyway, but, you know, it's like, it's fine. I, I also don't want to be in a bubble where no one criticizes me. Um, a lot of my writing isn't great. But so, you know, and, and at one point, this, this random guy referred to me as, you know, what, just a Medscape writer. Like, oh, I don't listen to Medscape writers. I don't take their opinions seriously. And it's like, because I write some articles for Medscape. Don't tell me I mean, he I'm became a Medscape writer. No, just <laughs> I, You know, I'm also a physician yeah, and I read course. and I, whatever. I mean, I'm not very important, but I'm also not a lay person. I do, I do have some medical expertise here. That's all you say. Um, and <laughs> so-called medical expertise. So and, uh, but, uh, but I was thinking about it. And I was like, well, people do read Medscape. I mean, not tons of people read my writing, but it's not zero people. I'm not writing in my diary. More like, than academic articles writing. for damn sure. Go on. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, people read my tweets. Um, I am shocked sometimes, you know, I, I tweet out random things and then someone, you know, mentions it later. And I was like, who even, I like, I'm honestly shocked someone read it. I don't know why. But it's actually still surprising to me. Like you brought this thing up that I hadn't thought about in months, and I was like, uh, you know, the internet's supposed to be fake. It's not supposed to be real. Like two two real human beings are not supposed to be talking about what goes on on the internet. It's it's uh, terrifying. And um, so you have to actually respect that maybe there is some influence in this already niche community. And and if we're if we have too much of a chip on our shoulder and we think well, we're the victims, we're going to also be be keeping people out. We're not going to, we're not going to build up allies in our, whatever, our own fight, but then we're also just going to not be, we're going to be biased, frankly. We're going to be, we're not going to be open and let, you know, people from diverse viewpoints and backgrounds come in. You know, one example is Wikipedia, right, which is now extremely important in sort of the social media and internet ecosystem, but it was for a very long time and, and still is, you know, a bunch of computer geeks writing these articles and editing these articles and managing it. And mostly you know, white men. Probably, yeah. Probably. And, you know, and they've sort of built up this niche community and who really cares? These are not actually powerful, rich people, you know, in, in traditional institutions, right? But now they're really biased. And, you know, everyone's been complaining that women can't get, can't get writing in. They can't get articles about women in. And I think there's tons and tons of legitimacy to this. Mm -hmm. You know, people oh, would I, rather write about Pokemon and video game characters on Wikipedia than, you know, female prime ministers of countries, right? right. No, but I 100% agree with that. And the platform is different than Ben Mazur's tweet. 100% agree with the New York Times quoting diverse sources, that sort of thing. Um, one of the things you alluded to is the barriers to entry. And I guess, you know, it sort of irritates me to some degree um, when people talk to me about this issue. And I'm like, look at the look, just look at my last hundred papers and look who the first authors are. Just count them up. Look who, look who I'm actually spending my time with, a lot of my time with, trying to help um, or at least bring into this field. Maybe they don't always stay. I can't keep someone in, you know, against their will, but I can try to bring in people. But if you look at my first authors, I bet they're more women than men and as diverse as America, or at least as diverse as the medical school classrooms. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best to, to work with everyone who comes in my door. But let me ask you this. We talk about communities. Isn't there a community online on Twitter? And the community and the topic area 
is to point out things like you as problem. You're the problem. The community, the thing they care about, the thing that their thing, their uniting thing of their community is that every week we got to find someone and, and pull them up, pull them up by the collar and show them to everyone and say, this is the problem. And you've created, that's a community too. And they're thirsty to find examples. And when you run out of the examples that we could talk about, you get to Ben Mazur's tweet. What do you think? Is that a community or no? Um, and after this, we're going to talk I mean, about there, overdiagnosis. There's, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's definitely people who care about this stuff. You know, but I think someone pointed out to me recently that I seem to have a very strong professional identity. Um, you know, I mean, whatever. I have an identity as a gay man. I have an identity as a Jewish guy. I have identity as a lot of things. But right. at least what I present myself, and I do think I actually, you know, a deep part of me, I have a really strong identity of being a physician and being a pathologist. And uh, someone pointed out to me, and it kind of, it took me back because I, I never, frankly, I hadn't really thought about it very consciously, but it is true. And, it, and some of it probably comes from being a young physician, right? Yes. Um, I'm new to this. I'm, I'm slightly less jaded. And then also I've just spent a decade of my life, you know, working nonstop toward this one thing. So right. obviously you're, you're in the phase where carrying the pager is still cool. Yeah. You're in that phase. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, um, so, you know, some of it is age, and then maybe some of it's because I'm really passionate about, about medicine and pathology. So, but I, but I didn't think about it as like an identity, like until he pointed it out. And so maybe that's what it is. And so, you know, when I see all these people interacting on these topics and going after each other on social media, and I see that it's a lot of physicians, medical students, you know, other allied health professionals, I mean, people in the medical and healthcare field, and then, you know, other kind of academics and PhDs. I just, I wonder if we're maybe putting the professional identity too far into the backseat. That, that, that actually, I think, is something important well that unites us, that we're all physicians or well we're played. all in the, you know, in the medical field. And there is a certain amount of respect we could give each other and thoughtfulness we could give each other and a way of communicating. We, we went through a lot of the same experiences, even, you know, pathology and internal medicine. I mean, we all went through medical school right. and all the tribulations that right. had. We've both and, been to war uh, together. We've been in the same war. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and we need to stay, you know, the, the profession needs to be able to communicate with each other because it is important to, for, for progress in medicine to not have a balkanized profession, to have a semi, I mean, whatever, there's liberal doctors and conservative doctors and, you know, doctors in a million different specialties and private practice and academic, but for whatever reason, I think there needs to be an undercurrent of uh, professional identity. I agree. That, that sort of lets the small things slide. And man, I mean, I, I tweeted something about that, you know, before that, that, you know, getting involved in politics and medicine is complicated and, um, I think, you know, putting your identity as a physician first is actually, that's more toward, you oh, can get involved in if politics, you said that, but it If you be, said that today, you'd be, they'd be coming after you for saying that. Remember, Mandrola said something similarly recently, and he got in hell of a Yeah, problem. and, um, you know, it's not a clean line, right? I mean, I have, I have personal political views about all sorts of, of things. Of course. Um, which I'm proud of, and I'm happy to talk about, um, you know, maybe not to patients or anything, but, but I'm happy to talk about it to other people. But then... When it comes to sort of political advocacy, I tend to focus more on things that I think, in my opinion, directly relate to healthcare, healthcare systems, you know, health insurance access, things related to lab testing. So whatever. Um, 
that that professional identity. And so when you get these huge pile-ons yes, about yes, yes. about social issues or political issues that aren't directly related to medicine, I think we lose a bit of that professional solidarity. And that's it makes me feel like people, you know, think I'm like an old man for saying these things. I don't know that like, you know, what is even like professional identity in medicine anymore because we're all so divided. But I just, I haven't lost faith in it yet. My last thoughts, I agree 100% with you, and then we're going to switch topics because I don't want to keep making you squirm a little bit. But um, I guess what I want to say is that um, there are these structural problems. They're massive. They are deeply problematic. They're the most problematic for real positions of power that are guarded by real institutions. They're the least problematic for rando tweets by rando trainee. Um, there's a, There's a gradient. Uh, when it comes to education and the pipeline problem we have for underrepresented minorities and, and, and uh, in education, there's a huge problem. The problem is worse in pre-K and K. Um, that's where the worst problem is. That's where the pipeline, you know, early life interventions, the real, you know, I think it's much, it's much more important. You know, you, you got to build a pipeline in the beginning. Um, the forces on Twitter that, that amplify themselves, one of those forces is to find the weekly Ben Mazer and pile on him. That's just a thing to do. It's a thing that gets you more followers and allows you to talk and feel good about yourself, making the world a better place. But Ben Mazur's tweet in the grand hierarchy of injustice is the least injustice in the world. The most injustice is, I would argue, right now what we're doing with kids' school. We have pub private schools open and public schools for poor black kids are closed. You know, Public schools for poor kids, minority kids, they're disproportionately closed. It's easy to fight the fight where you view the barrier, you view the problem is, why am I, I'm an associate professor. Why am I not a full professor? I'm a full professor. Why am I not chair? Why am I not dean? It's easy to fight that fight. It's, it, it's salient to you. It's harder to fight the fight of, why are these kids not getting opportunities to go into kindergarten? You know, I mean, I, I, just in the broad scheme of things. And I think it's easy to find a progressive physician like you and, and make him feel bad. And to show him as an example, it's hard to change the mind of somebody on the fence or who is conservative. I think that that's, and that's where we would actually make more progress. And so, I don't know, just to close on this, I think I didn't like what happened to you. I didn't like this response. I thought it was a harmless tweet. Um, and it wasn't, and, and I think people who criticize you didn't really, really understand why those names were the names that popped up on your browser. And I don't think they were popping up because of their race or ethnicity. I think they were popping up because they happened to self-select into this weird cohort of people who have a deficiency of fear, a deficiency of self-preservation, because that's why they're doing this, talking about this. They have high certain types of analytic intellect. They have certain life experiences, particularly medical experiences that have made them doubt, I think, a lot of medical technology. And this random constellation of things that has hit both men and women, Lisa, John, Indian Americans, you know, myself and a lot of people, it's just this random thing that has happened. Um, anyway, I'll move that aside. I want to talk about your, your, your new article, the lottery. Uh, this is such a good yeah. article. Why don't Thanks. I'll let you, you introduce it. You and in, well, actually let me summarize it. Then you introduce it. I always like to, I always like to summarize it first. You're spot. much more articulate. No, I, I guess cause I want to know what I get wrong. Here's how I would summarize it. I would say, um, you have stood by and reflected from the vantage of the way in which we select applicants for the numerous positions in medicine, from medical school to residency to fellowship. And at every juncture, you view it as, to some degree, capricious, some degree, popularity contest, some degree, irrational, because to some degree, many, many applicants are really good. They have 
really solid test scores. The difference from a solid test score to a great test score, that's debatable. But these are people who, they know how to memorize things. They can learn things, you know? They're solid. They have solid grades. They've been able to get good grades. They've been able to, you know, show that they care about classwork and they do that. And the difference between good grades and uh, exceptional grades, that's also kind of, you know, who gives a shit. That's really not much difference there. Um, they, they care about the world. They all have done some altruistic thing. They all have done some research. They're all doing checking off all the boxes. And once you get past those filters, if you want to choose Ben over Sarah or Vinayak over Venk, um, if you want to choose people in this way, to some degree, what you're doing is really just articulating your rando preferences about the world. You like that this guy learned Mandarin or this girl worked in Costa Rica uh, and you don't like that Ben worked in Portugal. You know, I mean, you know, it's just really random preferences about where he did a study abroad or those sorts of things. And so your article comes into this space and you say it is more ethical, it is more logical, it's more reasonable to just draw a cutoff and say all these people who have applied, this 40%, they're all acceptable people. They're people we can train to be good doctors. And the way we're going to pick our class of X is just randomly pick them lottery. And you think that's better and fairer than the capricious way that we have now. Yeah, uh, th that that is accurate. And, um, you know, I mean, you have to think what what admissions is for. I mean, who is it designed to serve and, and who does it help and who does it hurt? And uh, in medicine, at least, we care about patients and, you know, we want the best doctors to, to treat patients the best we can. And I think, you know, you start from the position that we don't really know who does that. We still don't know how to evaluate doctors and yeah, decide who's better, right? Yeah. Who's a better doctor. I mean, just taking people already who are already doctors and saying, you know, and there were a series of articles that came out, you know, that, that prompted me to think about this, you know, natural experiments and things looking at um, different characteristics of physicians and seeing what the actual outcome was, you know, based on medical record reviews and things. You know, you could look at mortality, you could look at other hard outcomes. And uh, I was like, well, you know, can you really measure the effect of a doctor on these kinds of hard outcomes? And right. then um, what about the soft outcomes? Because that also matters. Um, obviously, you don't want to hurt anyone and, and shorten their life expectancy, but you also want a doctor who's a good communicator and, and yes. who is compassionate. And I have no idea how to measure those things. I don't know who does. Um, so then, okay, we don't know who the best doctors are in the sense of treating the patients the best. So take a step back. Then how do we decide who to admit to medical school? Is it the people that are most likely to graduate? Because we want people to graduate, right? Um Obviously, you know, having tons of people fail out and struggle in school is bad for the school. It's bad for the applicants. You don't want people struggling and, you know, bear, you know, not being able to handle the work. So that's sort of a surrogate marker, but reasonable that you want people to graduate from medical school. Um, but then that, you know, and I was thinking, I was like, well, 100% graduation rate is actually kind of a bad goal in a sense, you know. We're we're Go very on. close to 100% graduation rate in the U.S. Right, yeah. I think um, you can you know, get to um, be, you can be a doctor being terrible all the way there and committing malpractice for years, and it's really hard to get rid of those people. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's not just that. It's also I think preference that we've selected a very specific type of person because we're risk averse and we don't want people failing out. So we've selected these cookie cutter kind of people who are, we know are most likely to graduate. I don't know what kind of doctor they become, 
but they're most likely to succeed in the medical school environment. And Can I, I add? That's, al- that's also why there's so few people in your tweet. That's also why. Because we've picked people that are risk averse and saying the sorts of things that Lisa, John, they're on different sides of the spectrum, but saying those things that Lisa has said, that John has said, that Venk has said, that I have said, that you have said, that's taking risk. And the people in that we are, we're not selecting for those personality traits. Okay, go on, go on. You're right. We're selecting risk over people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was thinking, well, maybe 100% graduation rate is actually a kind of failure because you think about it like doing a medical test. If everybody you test is positive, you're not doing enough tests, right? right? I mean, you're not, you're not expanding your outreach enough that you're getting the atypical cases, that you're getting the unusual or mild cases, right? You don't want everybody you do a medical test on to be positive because it means you're actually missing a lot of positives, you know, and, and you're missing the subtle and atypical cases, and they're going to come up later, you know? And so in the same way, I think if you're not taking any risks, you're missing out on people that may not look perfect on paper, that, but would actually be very successful physicians, you know? And the lottery is a way to open open that up a little in a hopefully a way that's a little more palatable um, and doesn't doesn't have as much bias to it to say that okay you know people with straight A's maybe graduate at a 99% rate and if you take people with some B's they may only 90% of them may graduate you may have 10% dropping out and that sounds bad at first but but think of it from the reverse if you reject everyone who has a B or lower 90% of those people would have been just fine Exactly. And you were actually not letting them in. Um, and is that fair just for that 10%? Just for, you know, these may be real statistical correlations. And that's actually what some of these lottery experiments in other countries have found is, um, you know, it's a real correlation, right? If you're, if you, the higher you achieve academically, the better, the higher chance you have of achieving in a medical education, which is a very challenging scholastic kind of environment. Um, but still, even the people with good but not superlative grades mostly graduate and do fine. Um, and so this is a way to bring them into the fold. Uh, so, you know, and then you have to look even farther back and to, to say who are these admissions people helping. And this is the other thing that I think people don't tend to focus on is the people who are rejected. Um, most people who apply to medical school in the United States do not get accepted anywhere. Um, you know, and then in an individual school, the vast, vast majority, I mean, acceptance rates can range from like 2 to 10%. So you're talking about rejecting at any individual school, you know, 90 or 95 or 98% of people. And certainly, I mean, people must admit that a lot of those people are probably perfectly qualified and we just don't have enough spots. Um, and so no one, no one really focuses on them. They're like, you know, but it's, it's sort of the same thing with overdiagnosis. Like, focus on the people that are kind of invisible in your system, in the pipeline. And if the majority of people are getting rejected, you also want to be fair to them. You don't want them to waste their time and money just to have them fail. Because any, right, I mean, if we could have a crystal ball and know in advance who was going to not get accepted or not, you know, you could say anything those people do to not get accepted, if they're not getting accepted, is a waste. It's a waste of time and money. And so making them go through the pre-med curriculum, making them apply to medical school, it's expensive, making them do all these activities that they think it's going to help their resume to get in. If ultimately they get rejected from everywhere, they don't get into anywhere, which is the majority of people, they've just wasted. And it's, it's human capital that's a huge waste for society, right? Why would we want people to waste their time pursuing a career they can't achieve for whatever reason? Like let that's me, a waste for everyone. Let me put it and to you so, this way. Um, yeah. So – Imagine a hundred people I've assembled. They've been rejected four years in a row and they finally threw in the towel. They've been pan-rejected four years in a row. 
you would not be surprised if of these hundred people I've rejected four years in a row from all the medical schools they applied to, let's say 70 plus, you know, maybe more, that if I took them all and I put them in a med school, maybe 70% would grad would actually become good doctors. They could make it 70%. I mean, the numbers you've quoted are, are a little bit higher than that, but those are people who got in somewhere, right? So let's say 70%, 60%. I mean, that wouldn't be that surprising that more than half actually could become a doctor and a good doctor at that. Would you agree that that's fair to say? Oh, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of the people that get rejected, absolutely. I mean, you know, I know lots of people that got rejected that went to the same good schools I went to, had good grades, yes. impressive extracurriculars, yes. worked yes. hard. I don't know. You know, I don't know what happened, honestly. Exactly. But, and I guess, and I guess what we're saying is, what we're saying is, we have a system in place where even though you have a 60, 70% chance of becoming a good doctor, if we were to take you in a school, we're saying that you don't even deserve that shot. That to me is, it, it is crazy. It seems like, it's not like there's like a 2% chance you're going to make it. You know, we always watch these movies in Hollywood where it's like the guy had a 1% chance of doing it and he, against all the odds, triumphs. Here we're saying the odds are in your favor, buddy. The odds are in your favor and you don't even get a shot. And I think some of the imbalances, and I view it, 22,000 U.S. medical graduates, 30,000 residency spots, a gap of 9,000. Um, that's a huge gap, and I think that gap should be closed. And one of the ways to close the gap is that the people who are currently being rejected, most of whom could actually become good doctors, you know, um, have some opportunity. There should be expanded medical school slots. I don't know if that ties into you. You, you could you could add a lottery. I mean, you know, I guess I was mostly talking about replacing. No, no, systems yeah, you're right. Lotteries, yeah, replacing. But but you could add a lottery. You could take take what we have as the current system, and then say, well, we're going to increase enrollment in every school by ten percent. Yes. And that's going to be we're going to you know. Pick of the people we rejected, we're going to take, you know, scholastically the top half of them, yes. and we're going to put them in a lottery yes. and offer them admission. Um, you could do that, you know. But the thing, the thing with the lottery is, you know, and some people pointed out online when I when the article came out a couple of days ago that, you know, maybe the the outcome isn't necessarily better. I don't know. They said some math that I don't understand, but the the outcome may not necessarily better. You may not select better people this way. Um, and so then what's the point? But the point is that if you know there's a lottery, if it's transparent, you waste less time on marginal things. Like if I know I have the grades and whatever prerequisites to get into the lottery, you know, at least, you know, economic rational person, you know, which some of us think, think sometimes, you know, you say, well, I'm not going to, why waste any more effort, right? I'm going to get into the lottery and then fate is going to decide. So I'm not going to do that extra, you know, bullshit project or, you know, spend money on a review course just to get a slightly higher grade, even though I know my grade will make it, um, you know, and so you think about, you know, you're still going to have a lot of people rejected from the lottery. Um, I mean, there's just a limited number of spots. A lot of people want to be doctors. I don't know why, but they do. And um, <laughs> so you're still going to have a lot of people rejected. So, so that is, you're going to, and you're going to have a lot of disappointed people. I mean, but they will have hopefully wasted less money and effort and time through this process. So it's yes. still a net gain. A lottery is, I don't know, I'm so biased. I mean, I think that um, a lottery is more ethical than the current system and and is more valuable, as you say. The moment you qualify for the lottery, you do not have to do any more useless bullshit to polish your CV. And... If anyone disagrees that people are doing useless bullshit, I think they haven't read enough CVs because people are. CVs are a collection of bullshit that people don't want to do. And and I guess I want to say, I mean, a, a little bit 
to push this a little bit. Um, you know, it is really stupid that, I mean, I just think it's just so stupid. We just like, uh, you, you want to be a doctor. What should you do this summer in your freshman year of college? You should work in someone's lab. Well, that's really stupid. The alternative is you could go to Spain and France and spend seven weeks there with your friends and maybe do take some classes in French or, or, or just explore. Um, I think that would be better for your soul, for your life to do that. But the reason yeah. that, that everyone is doing all this, and, and, and I don't even think, I, I, I want to articulate what's actually going on right now. From the moment people are in high school, Every ounce of free time is being taken away from these kids to calculatively do what it takes to build up the CV. There are applicants for medical school with publications, many publications. Um, there are applicants for residency with even more publications. I've seen fellowship applicants with patents, patents. <laughs> like, I don't got any patents. Um, it's an arms race. It's just growing and growing. And the reason it's growing is because everyone thinks that these things will get you that edge. But if in your world, you draw the line and the line is going to be much lower than the current bar, I think, for like the most excellent applicants. Um, you draw the line and you say, this is the bar you have to clear. And maybe different schools could have different lines, right? Or all the elite top 20 schools can get together and say, this is our line. And then the top, you know, whatever, the rest, the 160, the 40 other schools can say, this is our line. Um, and once applicants clear that, then they can get on with being a youth, get on with doing all those things youths do. Yeah, you know, some some of this maybe is is just personal reflection because I'm in these sort of career transition. And I think you're right is that I wasn't really a typical applicant. And um, and so I see exactly what you're talking about. I think everyone recognizes the arms race that's going on and sort of the stereotypical things you're supposed to do to get into medical school. And, you know, I've, I, I'm smart and, I you know, my grades were okay. They weren't great. They were much lower than probably the average medical school accepted person. Um, but... You know, my interests weren't necessarily some of the standard things that people do, like, you know, biomedical research, lab research. I never wanted to do that. I care about evidence-based medicine, but that's reading papers, analyzing papers, yes. statistics. Um, it's just, I mean, a lot of people do both, but I, I just don't care about, frankly, lab research. And so you say, oh, you know, some of your freshman year of college, you've got to go work in a lab. That's true. Most of my classmates, it's, I went to Swarthmore College, you know, a small liberal arts college with a very high medical school acceptance rate. Uh, that's why I went because I wanted to be a doctor and I said, well, these everyone gets in, so I'll just go here. Um, but then I saw people were doing, yeah, they were doing all this kind of research and, and, and then I realized like a lot of people get in because their parents are doctors of and they course. come from a lot of money. I was so not, I was such an 18 year old. I was like, you know, all these people seem to like be able to do all these things and they don't need a paying job. And it's like, how do they do that? And eventually I was probably 22 when it clicked. Oh, they're like rich. But, um, you know, the summer after my freshman year, I went, I, I worked for this organization called Food Not Bombs that, uh, it's just like sort of community, non, very, you know, non hierarchical organization that, that provides food to homeless people. And I was in Philadelphia, you know, where I'm from. And so I, you know, we cooked, uh, vegetarian food for homeless people. Sort of this, uh, I mean, it's such an 18 year old thing. Anyway, I guess I was 19, such a 19 year old thing. But, you know, whatever. I like, I got to spend time in the city. I love Philadelphia and I got to meet a lot of people that were very passionate about social, social activism and sort of doing things, you know, not just talking about it and whatever. I mean, we made some food and we fed some people. It didn't change the world. You know, people were still hungry the next day. Um, you know, Whereas, like, a lot of my classmates were starting nonprofits to, like, you know, feed people in other countries and, uh, or they were doing all this really impressive lab research. Um, and so that's not really much of a, I don't know, you know, you can't really put, like, 
volunteered for some organization, you know, that's not even like a real organization, like they just have like a, a listserv, you know, uh, on your CV, and I didn't have any research, and then my grades weren't that great. I did, I did very poorly in organic chemistry, which turns out you don't need to be a doctor. I haven't, uh, you know, pathologists run chemistry labs, and I still don't know any chemistry. Um, you've read, um, so, you've read uh, Gatsby, The Great Gatsby. Yeah. And you've read Mysteries of Pittsburgh by Michael Chabon? I haven't read that, no. I think he wrote it when he was 22, 24. The summer after my freshman year in college, you know, I went to Michigan State, and I went home for the summer. And I think I worked some odd jobs, but I don't think I did anything. Um, and I hung out with friends, and and someday if I were to write a novel about like what happened that summer, it would be a novel like Mysteries of Pittsburgh. You know, I could write that novel. But what it's like to be, I don't know, how old was I, 19? 19 years old, you know, hanging out with friends in the summertime in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, distant suburbs, um, going to some house parties, going to things like that. That's a, I mean, there's something to be said for that. That's, that's like literally what it means to be young is, and it doesn't yeah. go on a CV at all. There's no place on the CV for it. No. And I don't want to make it sound like people that worked in labs couldn't have fun. Like, no, but I'm you sure. Know, I yeah. Mean, some people are really boring and some people lived, had, had very, uh, very active social lives. I mean, I was a huge geek. I can't say I had the most exciting social life. Um, you know, but I had friends and, you know, could still do lab research and get straight A's and do all these things. But it's more that like, are they doing the thing they're really passionate about? And I know people that, you know, are passionate about biomedical research and became physician scientists, MD, PhDs, grant funded. And this is, they absolutely love it. It's not about getting ahead in their career, but, um, yeah, you know, so, and, and then I ended up applying through this special program. I realized the MCAT was, um, really hard and had a lot of physics and chemistry and I wasn't very good at physics and chemistry. I was, you know, I liked biology. I was also studying linguistics. I liked that. Uh, you know, I liked reading novels. I, you know, whatever. So it's like, I'm, I'm not going to do well in this exam. And, and, and University of Rochester, I went to medical school. They had this special program. You apply at the end of your sophomore year. Um, if you come from certain schools, I was, and so I applied and, you know, my grades, you know, slightly made it over the threshold to get into, to, to just apply to the program. And I went and I did an interview and, uh, I vaguely, I mean, you know, I, I really wanted to be a primary care physician. That's what I, I wanted to do. It was my dream. And um, so I talked all about how I wanted to be a primary care physician. And then, you know, they asked me why I did so poorly in organic chemistry during the interview. <laughs> and I came with something about how, I don't know, I'm not very good at it. Uh, and I was very caught off guard. I don't remember exactly what I said. I was yeah. like, I'm not very good at it. And for some reason, they accepted me. I, I don't know why. And so I Where'd felt you go to, you go to medical school? I don't remember. University of Rochester oh, okay, in upstate yeah. New York. Yeah, yeah. It's a very nice school. And they were basically trying to get a lot of liberal arts, more liberal arts yes. people in. It was this small program. And so they were going to liberal arts colleges and saying, well, you know, you don't even have to, you know, be a science major. Um, just come interview. And so I was really lucky. Um, and, you know, I mean, even getting into Swarthmore, I felt really lucky. Like I'd hit a lottery. You know, I had a really good friend in high school who applied also with me. You know, it's out, it's outside of Philly. So there were a bunch of people that apply from the Philly area schools and, you know, she was a much better student. She was in the uh, she was in the orchestra. She wanted to be an engineer. Um, I mean, much smarter than me, and and much more personable, frankly. And uh, and we both applied, and for whatever reason, she didn't get in, and I did. And we talked to each other on the phone. We got our letters on the same day, and it was like a complete shock to me. I mean, I was shocked I got in, and uh, I was shocked she didn't get in. And uh -huh. she went on to be extraordinarily successful, and you know, it was absolutely Swarthmore's loss. And um, so. 
you know, it, it frankly, it felt like a lottery. I have no idea what the decision-making process was like for them. But, you know, and so then it felt like a lottery when I got into medical school. Like, I, I didn't do these typical things. I didn't apply to a typical program. I never took the MCAT. Like, I didn't, I mean, I maybe it's a bit of imposter syndrome. Like, I didn't even deserve to be there. But, um, so it's, it's felt like a lottery all along. And then, you know, I came along to be a primary care doctor. And actually, I applied for the National Health Service Corps, which, you know, yes. they pay for medical school and... Uh, because I couldn't pay for medical school otherwise, except with loans, and um, and, and you have to be a primary care doctor, uh, and I was rejected, I, you know, because well, I don't know why I was rejected, but I was rejected, and so okay, so then I have to just pay for medical school, and I can do whatever I want, and I was still planning to be a primary care doctor, but then I fell in love with pathology. I didn't know what pathology was when I started medical school. Right. Who does? Right. I don't Who know, does? Right. and I just started to really love it, and then I ended up as a pathologist, and it's like that's such a serendipitous thing, and you know, if I'd been accepted to this really great program that would have paid for my medical school and done all these, you know, I, you know, maybe I would have been happy as a primary care doctor too. I don't want to say I wouldn't, I enjoyed it, but, um, you know, I would have had a very different career. So, uh, to totally random that I ended up a pathologist, frankly. Um, and you know, maybe if I didn't have a good pathology course in medical school, I wouldn't have even known anything about this field because I certainly didn't even know the word pathology before starting medical school. So it's just been a series of serendipitous events and, you know, I don't want to be too humble. I'm not an idiot, and I'm, you know, I, I'm very passionate about a lot of things. But uh, it doesn't feel like this was some merit merit based process. I feel like I got lucky, and anything could have failed along the way. And so, um, why not be transparent about that and and give people the rules of the game? Uh, you know, um, yeah. So, so it's a bit personal. I don't know if that that the math adds up to all that, but if it it feel you know I I feel it. I feel like we could be doing this in a more transparent way because it's already feels like a lottery to me. Yeah, I've gotten so lucky. I mean, it it is a lottery. I think that's what people don't realize. The problem with the lottery is instead of rolling a dice or spinning a wheel, the 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 lottery defining aspects are the randomness of the composition of the faculty members who are present during the admissions committee meetings. And these are not a diverse collection of faculty members. Actually, if we want to talk about representation and diversity, it's a collection of faculty members who are predominantly, I think, in internal medicine subspecialties, particularly primary care um, or internal medicine or medical education, which is a very unique type of faculty member. Maybe there's one person or two people who are speaking to demand their physician scientists in the mix, but, you know, it's a very sort of narrow section of people. Um, and they are can anchor to all sorts of things that are just really random things that people have done or random comments from uh, a certain letter to the editor or, or an admission essay. Um, and so I think sort of a, a fully transparent and open lottery would make much more sense. And I guess, I know our time's about to end. I guess I would just say, you know, um, in my experience was, you know, I chose my college because I went there on full scholarship. So I didn't want to have any debt when I graduated college. Um, and, uh, I wasn't going to get funding from my parents, um, to do that. Um, so, so that's why I chose where I went for college. And when I went for medical school, it was rolling admissions. And I remember very early on in the process, something like October, I got an admission from like one of my top five choices. Um, and so I canceled a lot of interviews, but I still went to a few others to kind of explore. And... One of the ones I went to, I think this was this was the Harvard Medical School New Pathway, um, and the the person who interviewed me there, 
said, I'm looking at your CV and you haven't volunteered enough with doctors. And he says, I'm not sure that you know what it means to be a doctor. I'm not sure you're going to be ready to be a doctor. And I told him, you know, I've already received admission from one medical school and I have decided I want to do it. So it is a moot point, actually, whether or not I will be a doctor. That's inevitable. The only question is whether or not I will be a doctor here. That's the question you face. And he didn't like that. He didn't like that answer. I wonder why. Uh, <laughs> he didn't like that answer. Um, and, um, and, and I had a similar experience when I was interviewing many years later for residency at Stanford. Um, and the program director was like, before we start, I have to ask you a series of questions. Tell me about a difficult situation you faced in your life and how you overcame it. Um, what is your strengths and your weaknesses? Uh, you know, and those sorts of boilerplate questions. And then I said something like, um, I'm happy to answer the questions, but I just want to let you know, um, the reason you're asking those questions is you want to decide who's going to be a good intern here, I would assume, uh, who's going to be a good resident here. And I guess, um, although those questions have not been explicitly studied to my knowledge for that particular purpose, they have been studied for selecting people for jobs. And it turns out that if you compare first year job performance reviews at the end of the year to the way in which someone answers those questions, the correlation coefficients are so ridiculously poor that asking your question is almost no better than a coin flip. And he didn't like that answer. I don't know why. <laughs> and you didn't do your residency at Stanford. I didn't do my, I didn't do my residency at Stanford. Well, you know, I mean, some of it is, is plausible deniability, right? I mean, it's the idea, it's, 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 a, it's a way to internalize, you know, a meritocracy, idea, because everyone recognizes that this is not a perfect system that always produces the perfect outcome. I mean, no, no matter how much of an advocate you are for any kind of educational admissions process, no one thinks any of them are some kind of ideal, perfect thing. Yes. But it does provide some plausible deniability for both the applicant and the and the admissions Program, person yeah. to say that, well, there was, you know, there was a reason it couldn't have been completely random, you know, because... Well, you know, I got rejected and, and my friend got accepted, but, you know, their GPA was a 3.8 and mine was a 3.7, so they were the better candidate, and so they got in. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe that didn't even really matter, and uh, we were, maybe that's not even why one was selected versus the other. There was some other random reason. But, you know, I mean, you internalize it. You say, well, and, and that's the thing in these that's, kinds of yeah, arms but, races but, is but, there's always someone better. So you'll say, well, you know, I didn't have like, four OGPA. I didn't, I didn't like, have um, this extracurricular. That's like the NBA saying this, this basketball player is 6'10 and this is 6'8. The 6'10 player is going to be better than the 6'8 player, don't you know? I mean, at some point, it's right. like, no, they're both sufficiently tall to play in this league and you have no clue but, who's going to be better, right? Yeah, that's But the, we don't like the, I mean, that's yeah, why I told like the essay, you know, accepting randomness yes. because there's already a randomness and it's very hard to accept. And I think even people that can recognize this at a logical level have a hard time admitting that something important in their life was based on chance. You know, that um, we, you know, even if we're going to blame ourselves, and I have plenty of guilt and, and all these things I've done wrong and could have done better, um, you know, it's just, I think, I think people would even rather blame themselves than admit that it was just a stroke of bad luck. Yes. Because in theory, you can do something about a flaw, right? Like, I, I didn't score high enough, I wasn't smart enough, or I didn't do this extracurricular, that extra, or I didn't, you know, I didn't perform well in the interview. Um, there's still an optimism to that to say I could do better next time, you know, or I could I can improve this about myself. If it's just chance, you're just like stuck. 
And, you know, and that's, that's what has hurt, like, the system, you know, the Dutch system I wrote about, you know, is over. They stopped their lottery after decades, and it was a very successful few decades. I mean, overall, it worked very well, but they stopped it because there were just a few people who got into the news that they thought, these people deserve to get in. They had great grades. They were very personable. They had great extracurricular. They worked in labs. I mean, I guess this is an international thing. And they got rejected. And so the system is just, and there's nothing they can do about it. You know, Correct. like they already had great grades. They had, they got into the lottery. It was just bad luck. And it, and the Dutch system was a weighted lottery. So if you had the best grades, you had an 80% chance roughly of getting in. Right. And this, this one person who, you know, got in the news and ended up leading to the long-term demise of the lottery, she, um, yeah, she got rejected three, you could apply multiple years in a row. She got rejected three times in a row. So 80% chance of acceptance each time. You know, three times in a row is actually pretty bad odds. I mean, that's she got very unlucky, right? Yes. I mean, you should have being in the top top category each time and still getting rejected is three times in a row. It's very low odds, and yes. the only explanation one minus point eight to the third power. Yeah. Uh, right. Yes. Yes. One. What, the only explanation was she was unlucky. You know. And uh, apparently that was psychologically very hard for people. So, you know, you know if people... Because she deserved it. Yeah. I and mean, she did, I, probably. I mean, she sounded course. like a great candidate. Well, you know, I think there, there's a simple way to sort out this, this, this question, which is even within a school, they can take their class of 160 and divide it into two halves. One, half the applications you put in pile A, half the applications you put in pile B. Pile B, you do the lottery method. Pile A, you do it the old-fashioned way, wasting 1,000 hours of conference time to discuss everyone's candidacy. And then after five years, don't tell who's who. You know, don't tell the people you invite who's who. And then after five years, you see how often did they pass clerkships, how often did they pass whatever stupid step exam they have to jump through. And how often do they, you know, go into practice? What specialties do they choose? And if it's absolutely indistinguishable, then, you know, I think you, you pretty much have your answer. Um, uh, but anyway, I know you have to go. So um, I think this was really instructive. I mean, I think lottery is the answer, not just in medical school, but, you know, places like Harvard undergraduate admissions. Do we really have the arrogance to think the person who just didn't make it to Harvard was... Uh, not as meritorious as the person who just made it. It is 1,600 spots, and then there's probably 20,000, 40,000 meritorious, maybe even more, 100,000 meritorious gradu um, students graduating from high school every year who are Harvard material. Um, ben Mazer, you got to run. You're in a shared room. And I'm in the middle of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. All right. Take care. Okay. Well, it was nice talking. All right. Bye. Bye. That was Ben Mazer. He's cut short because somebody walked into his conference room. But I think I will finish my thought. My thought is he's right about the lottery. And I think that the instance where he was criticized for his tweet is a very illuminating instance about the way in which a well-motivated push for a better and more inclusive world can accidentally push too hard and find an example that doesn't really fit and, you know, punish someone who probably shouldn't have been punished. Those are my thoughts. So that's it. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Tem Bendapudi. Dr. Bendapudi is assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School. He is an expert in hematology, specifically thrombosis and hemostasis. And we're going to be talking about TTP and the greatest new drug, caplicizumab. Dr. Bendapudi, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So when you see patients with TTP, um, 
that's that's something important in our line of work in in classical hematology because it's a, it's a severe diagnosis. What runs through your mind when they call you in the middle of the night and say, "I see schistocytes"? What do you think? That's <laughs> uh, a great question. I mean, I think um, you know, in our training as hematologists, this is kind of one of the things that people describe as the um, as the heart attack of hematology, uh, something you need to respond yeah. to quickly. <laughs> Um, I, I would say that, you know, there are a lot of conditions that can cause uh, schistocytes, which are these uh, broken up red blood cells that uh, are in circulation in um, in conditions like TTP. But there are a number of other conditions that can cause it, too. And I think one of the most important things in the middle of the night when you get a call like this is to really try to figure out if this is a real case of TTP or one of these other conditions that can look like it. So what are those other conditions and, and how do you tease it apart Yeah, when you get called? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, we have, um, so, so, uh, you know, it's unfortunately, uh, a lot of conditions can look like this. Um, cancer can cause it, uh, transplant can cause it, certain medications can cause schistocytes to appear on a smear. And so, um, uh, actually our research group, uh, which works on, uh, TTP specifically, uh, have, uh, developed a scoring system, a clinical scoring system that physicians can use to try yeah. to diagnose, uh, TTP, um, in the middle of the night. But at the end of the day, uh, you really need a blood test uh, called the ADAMTS13 uh, assay to really measure the levels of an enzyme that go down severely in patients with TTP, but not with other forms of, of, of these uh, of these TMAs, schistocyte conditions. Yeah, and um, what's the turnaround time at MGH for for the ADAMTS? Um, right now, it's still three to five days, actually. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a send out test, and we don't really have access to it in house. There are only a few centers in the country that that do it in-house because it's a rare disease and, and it's actually the only thing the test is used for. So many places don't want to maintain um, the test in-house because of the cost and the, and the staffing requirements. Um, so instead, they have us send it out. So we have this window of often two to three days at least where we don't really know for sure what's going on with the patient. Yeah, and this is a common dilemma we face when you get called there's some evidence of microangiopathy, there's some evidence of schistocytes, and the platelets have fallen, and you're not exactly sure what's going on. And so the decision that often comes across our desk is the, is the decision of plasmapheresis or not of plasmapheresis. And I once, a while back, I spent some time and I looked up the original randomized control trials that support plasmapheresis over plasma infusion, which was the standard of care prior. Um, and uh, there's some there's small studies from like the 1970s that show mortality benefit. This Canadian study. Um, uh, so I guess uh, in your mind, um, how do you decide who are those people that are going to get Plex, and um, while you wait for the Adams TS, and 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 what sort of benefits you think you're, they're deriving from the Plex? Yeah. So um, I mean, the study you're referring to, the Rock study from uh, from 1991 in the New England Journal, was a seminal uh, 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 study in our area. It took them 10 years almost to accrue the patients. I see. That study because it's a rare disease, Wrong and it's um, uh, it really proved that um, plasma exchange is superior to just giving people plasma infusion. There was a, a quite a uh, quite an improvement in mortality. So in big centers like yours and, and where I work, um, plasma phoresis or plasma exchange is actually the standard of care now. We really, really don't just give plasma to people unless we have a very low suspicion and we're just kind of waiting for the ADMGS-13 assay to come back and the patient looks clinically very well. Um, but I would say in you know uh, 85 to 90% of high-risk cases, we're, we're really going straight to plasma exchange. And what is the rationale of plasma exchange? The body makes something that's targeting Adams TS13, and you have to remove that from the body. Is that right? Exactly right. So what causes TTP is the production of an autoantibody um, against the enzyme Adams TS13. 
Um, and um, MTS-13 is responsible for cleaving von Willebrand factor, which many of us remember from med school as being important to thrombosis uh, and, and hemostasis. Cleaving von Willebrand factor into smaller units, it, it, it's, it's produced as a large multimer. These large multimers, uh, when you lose ADMTS-13, can accumulate and um, actually cause uh, small blood vessel clots inside, um, uh, in, in the small vascular, the small, uh, the, the microvasculature, and that can be quite dangerous. So, um, uh, so you know, in TTP, this autoantibody wipes out ADMTS-13, which makes uh, the accumulation of uh, these ultra-large one little factor multimers occur. And um, to answer your question, what plasma exchange is doing is it's removing the um, the bad antibody, the autoantibody in the um, plasma, and then giving back donor plasma, which has all the goodies in it, right? That's going to have all your ADMTS-13. It's going to have smaller von Willen factor multimers uh, uh, in it. And um, it, uh, it, it that's actually curative in this condition. And if you're in a pickle, you can just infuse the plasma and let the ADMTS-13 overwhelm the antibody. Exactly right. So if, if you uh, in a lot of centers that don't have uh, access to overnight or 24-7 plasma exchange, uh, it is uh, totally acceptable to give uh, FFP or, or just plasma transfusion until uh, you can get the patient to uh, to a center where they can do exchange. But it's, um, uh, you know, again, in a, in a large place, so it's, it's kind of a large center, small center kind of um, uh, dichotomy, I think there. I see. You know, the body is full of things that could be antigens, could be epitopes for autoantibodies. Why in the universe of all the possible autoantibodies, we get we get many types of flavors. We get all the rheumatologic conditions, which is, you know, autoantibodies against centromeres and this, then that, and neutrophil, this and that, and all these things that I don't care about because I'm not a rheumatologist. But we also get <laughs> autoantibodies against ADAMS-TS13. Do we get autoantibodies to every epitope with equal frequency? Or is there something about ADAMS-TS13 that is, lends itself to getting autoantibodies more than the average thing in the body? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's like one of the million dollar questions out there in our field. I'm, I'm certainly not a rheumatologist or an immunologist either. Um, I think there are definitely certain proteins, at least in hematology, yeah. that are much more prone to getting autoantibodies. Yeah. As, as, as I mean, uh, factor eight yeah. is much more prone to autoantibody development than factor nine. Yeah. Like, why? Why? You yeah. Know? I mean, it's, it's a bigger molecule, but that doesn't really explain the whole thing. Sure. Um, uh, AMTS-13, for whatever reason, um, there are just – there's a propensity to get these autoantibodies in certain individuals, and it can be quite quite deadly you know, if it's not picked up in time. So it's just one of those things, you know, one of those mysteries of medicine. Just like COVID toes, we may never know the truth. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. We may never okay. know. We may never know. Okay, okay. So that's the <laughs> the path of physiology. Um, that's why we use uh, a plasma exchange. And, and you make another excellent point, which is you plasma exchange someone, you get them through this acute insult, um, and then and some people have durable remission. So what explains the durable remission? Why um, do some people? Uh, flip this off and why do some people still relapse you know what's the lot what's the physiology there biology there yeah i, I mean our, our data suggests that you know the relapse rate is pretty high it's yeah. like 30 to 50 percent uh, if you go out far enough and um the the short answer to your question is we really don't know why uh, uh people relapse um uh, you know we, we published a study actually last year uh, uh of a multivariable regression analysis cost regression analysis looking at uh possible predictors of relapse and we found uh, three major risk factors. One is younger age at the time of presentation, and that's adjusting for follow-up period. So that's not just, you know, obviously younger people, you're going to have a longer follow-up, more chances to re relapse. But we adjust for that. You're still looking at um, 
uh, a higher relapse rate. And that might be because, you know, people presenting younger, often, as you know, in medicine, just in general, have a more severe sure. case of whatever, of whatever it, is. it is they have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number two is blood group, non-blood group O. So hmm. groups A, B, and AB are at higher risk. And that's because uh, group O, probably because group O people have lower rate, levels of von Willebrand factor in general. So they're oh, maybe slightly protected. Okay. That's at least the thought. Sure. Kind of interesting, right? Because von Willebrand factor yeah. is the, the, the culprit in all of this. Of course, of course. Yeah, runaway and, uh, von Willebrand. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third thing is not going to surprise you at all is that if you've had a previous episode and you're presenting with a relapse, your chances of having another relapse in the future sure. is also higher. Relapse so, begets you, relapse. Yeah. Exactly. And the best predictor of future performance in medicine is past performance. And yeah. so, um, so those are the main things that we've, we've identified. And there are, of course, molecular immunological factors that, um, I'm not qualified to talk about, but, but I'm sure that, uh, govern all of this. I see. And then in your mind, as a hematologist that's consulting on this problem, when do you think about Vinca, steroids, Rituxin, who do you deploy them in, and at what time point? How do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. So I, I tend to give um, steroids to all my patients up front. Uh, there is a, it probably doesn't do much in most patients, but there, I, I think there is definitely a subgroup of patients who might respond only to steroids alone. Sure. Um, and, and what do you so give? We want you give forty of Dex. What do you give? You give like a uh, yeah. We, we actually give one big per keg of prednisone. Of prednisone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, and there's this whole like no one really knows how long sure. to keep it on for. No one knows really you know what the course should be. But we just everyone kind of does their own thing. But but the first for the first week or two, almost, you know, almost everyone will get this one big per keg sure. or equivalent of a prednisone. Um, and there are case reports of people responding only to that. Not right. even It's very rare, but it can happen. Um, and then Rituxx, um, as you know, you know, is a great uh, immunomodulator. Um, it, it decreases the risk of recurrence. That's been proven multiple times now in several pretty well-designed uh, studies, in my opinion, even though it hasn't been done in a RCT, in a randomized controlled trial. And, and it's pretty, the data is pretty convincing. And so we are moving more and more towards using Rituxx, uh, Rituximab up front, mm. uh, or at least during the initial presentation, rather than waiting for a relapse. You know, not necessarily upfront in the sense that as soon sure. as the patient comes, but during but that before they're discharged. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And and I'll just say, you know, for your listeners who are who are MDs out there, also in the um, he, uh, hemoc area, hemoc field, uh, the Rituxx dosing is also very interesting yes. because a lot of people give this kind of like, uh, you know, lymphoma dosing, 375 milligrams per meter square yes. weekly times four. It's like it's like basically, you know. Uh, just an ocean's worth of rituximab for a benign heme condition. <laughs> their their uh -huh. B cell mass is like much lower. They don't sure. have they don't have uh, uh, the risk of resistance or mutation that that DLBCL patients have. Sure. So I actually just give one gram IV times one, um, and then just send them out on that. That's the rheumatologic dosing. Uh, but um, you know everyone kind of does things differently. But I don't think they need to have the oncologic dosing. Either. I see. I see. So you just do one gram times one. Okay. Yeah. Roughly, roughly a B and regardless of BSA, you just do it. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for somebody with 1.73, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it comes yeah. out to be close, but, close, but, but yeah. we don't do that. We don't do the repeat. Yes, the repeat. Back. It's yes. kind of like, um, their B cells like, have yeah. been hit. They've been, a, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> it's a rheumatologic, it's a rheumatologic regimen that is used relatively common. It's just to give one gram and, and you know, their B cells, if you do peripheral blood flow cytometry on them, even a day or two later, which we've done at MGH, you know, just to kind of take a look. Their B cell, at least their peripheral B cell compartment, is completely cleared. I see. By that point. Yeah, I yeah. see. 
So I guess, and what we're alluding to here with glucocorticoids, with rituxin, with even some of the cytotoxic drugs we eat that you sometimes use in these people who keep relapsing, um, and phoresis is everything we're talking about is directed at the biology of the disease, either mm. removing the culprit autoantibody or uh, ablating the cell that's making the culprit autoantibody. That's how we're treating the disease. Correct. And, and replacing the, uh, and the replacing missing enzyme. enzyme. Sure. And replacing the, 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 enz- the enzyme that's, that's, that's missing. Exactly. Enter caplicizumab. This is a different different way. Is it treating the root cause? Maybe tell us a little bit about before we get into this trial and before I, I blow a blood vessel in my neck because I hate it so much. <laughs> um, why don't you just tell us through like, what? how is this supposed to work? What's the logic? Is yeah. it the same as these other things? So um, that's a yeah exactly. So so that, that's key. So just to take a step back and kind of um, uh, talk a little bit about uh, this drug, caplicizumab. It's um, one of the first new treatments that has been generated or been um, developed for TTP really since the advent of um, uh, plasma exchange in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, it's a nanobody um, biologic agent that mm. targets von Willebrand factor. And actually prevents the um, uh, uh, prevents the the thrombo- prothrombotic effects of unrelent factor from um, occurring. And so, what basically is happening uh, in people who receive caplicizumab is that their the function of unrelent factor is being blocked. So even if they have an autoantibody against AMTS13 and they have these ultra large unrelent factor multimers. Um, it almost doesn't matter because the VWF, sorry, the von Willebrand factor that's there can't work. I see. Um, the, the downside, of course, is that there's a name for that condition. It's called type 3 von Willebrand's disease. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you're born yeah. without von Willebrand factor at all uh, and or with very, very low levels, and um, it's, a, it's an extremely dangerous bleeding condition. So the uh, obvious Predicted uh, adverse side effect, effect of caplicizumab yeah. is, is, is bleeding. And you say it's a, it's a nanobody, which my understanding is something that comes from camels. It is a unique type of antibody that doesn't exist in anything else but in camels. It's very small. That's correct. It's very small. It's just really, you can, if you think about the tips of, uh, you know, of antibody has, has, has two kind of binding sites. If you just think about the tips, that's really what you're getting, those two tips. As, so it's a much smaller molecule. I understand it's, uh, my understanding is that it's much easier to manufacture uh, for you know um, pharmaceutical purposes as well because it's a smaller um, smaller molecule. I see. If I yeah. if I took you right now and I pumped you full of caplicizumab, you think at some point you'd start to bleed? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, would, would, fact, it be, I, would it be a perfect crime? Could I get caught? Do you think? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that it would be there. Would, there would definitely be blood tests to show that I had developed a type, severe type three von Willebrand's yeah, disease overnight. Yes, overnight. Uh, yeah. But, um, but you know, if you look at the, the trial data, it's pretty well borne out that these patients have uh, quite a bit more bleeding PCH three with caplicizumab than those treated with standard of care um, plasma exchange. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one thing interesting to me that I draw the distinction is that um, in 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 the causal sort of pathway of this disease this is sort of a late event in the in the pathophysiology of ttp you're not treating the autoantibody where it comes from you're not treating restoration of adams ts you're preventing von willebrand's um from from forming very large multimers um which contributes to the 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 final common pathway to thrombotic risk i mean a key thing to remember about caplicizumab is that it does not unlike 
all the other therapies yes. we use in yes. TTP, it does not alter the underlying disease process. Yes, that's what I want you to say. I, I, yeah. I think Go I ahead. think that that's an important thing to remember. You know, it it, it does, um, and this actually goes back when I tell a lot of the stuff that you've done. You know, in terms of surrogate outcome markers, it does kind of treat the number. Right? If, that's what like I think. That. Yes, uh, and you know, it, it increases your platelet count. Uh, which is one of the markers that we use to monitor a response to treatment. It does that very nicely, of course, because it immediately blocks the function of VWF. But if you look at hard outcomes, there really doesn't seem to be much of a difference, and uh, certainly not a statistically significant difference. And um, uh, another downside, as you may remember, you know, even from your days in training, is you know when you get one of these patients, you know, you're following that platelet count to watch them respond to platelet change. Yes. Yes. When you give when you give capitalism the next day their plate count you know skyrockets. Yes. But you have no idea how long then to continue the plasma exchange because their thrombocytopenia is masked by the drug. And I think that is a um a, a real concern. And in the randomized controlled trial data in the FDA approval trial and in the preceding phase two trial, you'll see that um patients getting capitalizumab had a much higher rate of relapse, relapse as soon as the treatment was discontinued because they were probably because they were under yes, and they didn't actually receive think. sufficient therapy. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's, it's, um, it's actually a real practical concern as well, you know, that we don't have an answer to that. It's such an interesting design. So you've alluded to Hercules. we got to dive right in. So I guess yeah. to the credit of the Hercules investigators, at least they're doing randomized trials in this space. That, that's, the, oh, yeah. that's the credit. To the detriment of the Hercules investigators, they have constructed a very convoluted trial that uses an endpoint that I don't like, um, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, and, and let's talk through it. It's a very interesting study. So, I mean, I have a, a thought experiment for you before we even talk about Hercules. If I did a randomized control trial and um, in one arm, we just do what we're doing now. In the intervention arm, I build a glitch in Epic and all it does is adds 50 to the platelets. Um, I've done nothing to the biology of TTP. I've just made a computer glitch and whatever you think the doctor, the platelets are, I've added 50. So this is my hypothetical randomized trial. What do you think might happen? Well, one, after you start, I mean, when you get these patients, let's say my glitch only goes into effect the moment you start phoresis. You start phoresis, my glitch starts. Um, your platelets are going to be higher in my, in my EMR glitch arm than they are in the control arm. So you're going to stop phoresis sooner. Um, I suspect there's going to be um, more relapse in that arm because you're not treating the disease enough adequately. Um, will you have more bleeding? Potentially, because... Um, uh, you, you're going to have some more runaway TTP and you might have some sort of uh, thrombosis and bleeding on, on the back end, but I don't know if you'll get that. Um, the reason I think about it this way is now let's talk about Hercules. Hercules is a randomized controlled trial of capilocizumab and the primary endpoint, I want to double check, the primary endpoint is time to normalization of the platelet count. Um, and, 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 <laughs> okay, why don't, why don't I let you talk about it? Yeah, so, Sorry. yeah, yeah. Uh, no, 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 I, I, everything you said is exactly correct, and, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very cleverly designed trial in the sense that, um, they chose a surrogate endpoint that, um, they could not help but meet. Yes. Uh, whether that surrogate endpoint is really predictive of any improved outcome in, TTP is a totally different story. Yes. Um, but it is, uh, there's no question that they were going to meet this because they're essentially applying a Band-Aid to the problem. Yes. Masking the thrombocytopenia and then saying, okay, you know, declare victory and get out. So that's not really, but unfortunately the 
the follow-up data is not really um, encouraging that that's a good way to solve this problem. Yeah, and I guess my question for you is, is Kaplacizumab and my electronic medical record glitch experiment, is there anything in the data that would, that would show that they are indistinguishable? In other words, what happened in this trial that's different than if you just inserted an electronic medical record yeah. glitch? It's a great thought experiment because I, and, and to be honest, I don't think there would be a discernible difference there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just want to caution, you know, uh, 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 caution your listeners as well. I mean, we don't know the long-term impacts of capitalistizumab. On the one hand, yeah, you know, you have bleeding. It could be, it, you have a relapse. It could be damaging. On the other hand, I, I also have to be open to the possibility that, um, it does uh, help. Yeah. That it does help long term, that there could be improvements in neurologic outcomes or things like that that are subtle, but th that we're not picking up that come from this uber blockade of the VWF uh, um, th uh, clotting system, clotting pathway. But, um, but you know, th that remains to be seen. And, and as you know, the, the burden of proof is really on the investigators to show that, not on people who, who, who think the drug uh, should be uh, used with caution. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that would have been a great study to do a randomized trial powered for those long-term outcomes. You'd need bigger sample size, yeah, but it, yeah. and it would really show if this is actually worth its salt. So I, Absolutely. The studies, the, 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 both um, uh, Titan, which is a preceding study, and, and I believe Hercules as well are, are um, also, uh, because Ray Astor just kind of alluding to what you just said, is that uh, not all the patients in those two studies had confirmed TGP, had confirmed severe MTS-13 deficiency. So in I some see. cases, they may have even been treating patients that didn't have, you know, true TTP. Um, and um, uh, that's also of concern. You know, we don't really know. It's, it makes a, uh, the results harder to interpret. They don't report what percent had actual TTP? I don't, I think I missed that part. They, they, they do. Uh, it's, it's, it's surprisingly low. I believe in Hercules, it's um, only like 80 Five percent or eighty percent had um, confirmed severe MTS thirteen deficiency. So what do the rest of the people have? They have like HUS. They have um, tissue they microangiopathy. Have a, what do well, they have? You can imagine they have. So 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 the other twenty percent. Let's uh, and I'll, I'll get I'll get that number. But the other twenty percent um, have um, other forms of TMA. Right? They oh, yeah. have uh, forms of TMA that look like. You're right. Eighty five percent. Eighty five percent. And. So they either don't have an MTS-13 assay at all, or the MTS-13 is not severely deficient. Oh now, what God. does that mean? Yeah. Well, well, if you have a non-TTP form of TMA, like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, those are none of those are things you want to have. They're all they all have to do with cancer, transplant, um, uh, um, you know, severe drug reactions yes. with high mortality in our data set. Patients with non-TTP TMAs, uh, we have like a 30-40% mortality in 90 days. So you can imagine that if those patients are accumulating in the, t in the plasma exchange arm, this is a tiny study, right? Sure. If you get a couple more of those patients in the plasma exchange arm than in sure. the capitalism arm, it can look like capitalism at least your mortality benefit sure. when really incorporated these patients who have non-TTP TMA sure. into the control arm. And, and they don't report really, uh, the authors don't report really where those patients fell into either, either of the arms. So we really have no way to evaluate that. Oh, that's fascinating. That's a big problem. I mean, I guess it's a double-edged sword. On the other hand, if they waited for the diagnosis, they would, you know, one, lose market share, and two, maybe they would believe they'd lose the window where the drug would work. So they got to treat when you don't yet know they have TTP. But yeah. I'm curious, in your experience oh, at I'm MGH... Sorry, I, 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 I'm yeah. sorry. I, I no, they did report it by arm. They, they did report it by arm in, in Hercules. I don't think they did in Titan. In Titan. Um, uh, so I, I want to make sure that that is correct. And actually, there were slightly more in the capitalism of arm. Um, than in the, than in the um, placebo arm. I see. Right. So, so, so it, may, it may cut against them too. Um, yeah. 
in your experience at MGH, when you deploy phoresis for presumptive TTP, what percent of the time do you find the Adams TS is less than 10% on the back end? I mean, we all have to do some phoresis in people who it comes back and it wasn't low. Yeah. Um, we actually we actually did a study on this, published it a couple years ago, um, and looked at really how many people, you know, in um, our system, actually I have results here, uh, in our system um, were kind of, so it's very common actually for patients to come in and get kind of misdiagnosed with yes. TCP. They're thrombocytopenic and they look like they have a... Um, uh, a TMA, like schistocytes on the smear. Yes. And um, what happened in the past is that we end up giving these patients, um, we end up giving these patients phoresis, you know, because phoresis is, is actually a relatively, relatively, not totally benign, but relatively benign therapy. And if they get a couple rounds of phoresis while we're waiting for the test to come back, it's no big deal. Um, and, but, you know, within the group of patients who, um, who are getting, you know, who look like the like suspected TTP, who get to the point where they're actually getting phoresis, something like a third of them or, uh, or even 40% are missed are kind of like non-TTP patients are yes. misdiagnosed and they get a couple rounds of phoresis. So it's not, it's not a rare thing, at least yes. in our system. Yes. And, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we're a big hospital system with a tertiary care center, partner care center. So you can expect this might happen even more frequently in the community where maybe there's less uh, expertise and, and familiarity with, with these rare conditions. In any case, um, the problem is, I think, with capitalism, which which um, is the corollary to what you're saying, is that someone comes in with thrombocytopenia, they don't have TTP, but then they get capitalismab because they're misdiagnosed with TTP, which is a common event, common occurrence. Then, you know, now you've given someone with thrombocytopenia type 3 von Willebrand's disease, yeah. severe von Willebrand's deficiency on top of it. So you're getting yourself into a real potentially dangerous situation. and um, And that has not been, I think, um, adequately addressed uh, in, uh, in the real-world data. That's an excellent point. And I guess uh, related to that, if one gives it for the wrong reason, one might not see a platelet bounce. The platelets might not come up. Absolutely. They won't. They, they won't. won't. Yeah. And then, and then you, I mean, hopefully those patients are getting MTS-13 testing and, um, and they'll come off of the, the um, plex the Plex uh, pretty soon or Kaplacizumab for that matter. But, um, but yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's certainly, um, it's certainly a, a concern. So some might say the answer is to give him more Kaplacizumab, but that would be the wrong, <laughs> the wrong answer. So, uh, yeah, some might say that. I, I do not think that would be the right answer. <laughs> so I have something that just came hot off the press. It's the guidelines. And here's what they say. Give it. What is up with these guidelines? What's going on here? Yeah. Um, so I think you're, you're so referring to the um, uh, guidelines from the International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis, ISTH guidelines that were recently um, uh, published. There, there are two parts of the guidelines. There's a diagnostic part um, and, a, um, uh, and a treatment part. Um, both were written with capitalism in mind. Mm. And um, if, if you look at the guidelines, I, I, I think, you know, there are definitely some, you know, guidelines can be very helpful, but they also need to be taken with a grain of salt yes. often. Um, um, I think there are some areas of concern for sure with, with what they're recommending. Um, first, uh, they talk about um, taking a really high, uh, the patients with a really high pretest probability of TTP yes. and giving them capitalismab. Um, and I, I would point out, first of all, that there is... Um, no way of actually determining 
uh, the ultra high risk uh, uh, pretest probability patients. I mean, they're talking about greater than 90% pretest probability, and we don't have any way of determining that. You know, even our yeah. scoring system, which which I think I think is probably the, the, the yeah, thank, thanks, thanks. Uh, you know, definitely, you know, the, the most widely used, if not one of the most widely used, yes. if not the most widely used, is. Uh, we, you know, our high risk group only goes up to 82%, 62 to 82%. There's a range. Yes, it's not yes. really, it's not know, over 90. Yeah. It's not over 90. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea that you can identify these patients accurately and then target capitalism to this like group of patients with the ultra high risk, yes. I think is, 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 is fantastical. Yes. Um, the other thing is, you know, uh, once you give it the, um, I mean, this is a, this is a drug and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but yes. It, the minimum cost is two hundred and seventy thousand yes. dollars per course. Yes, uh, uh, that raises concerns already. But but you're you're giving the drug uh, up front, uh, practically up front, and you're not even checking first to see if these patients are responding to the standard care treatment, which is much cheaper. I have an issue with that as well. I don't think that that is wise, particularly since capacitumab has some pretty severe uh, potential side effects. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say in an alternate universe where the FDA said we're going to approve drugs for TTP that improve um, the the quality of the life of somebody with TTP, um, their their downstream side effects and harms of TTP, this drug wouldn't even be approved. And so for it to be in the guidelines based on this data really troubles me. Um, it it almost makes me concerned that the guidelines somehow have been captured by the maker of caplicizumab. It's as if caplicizumab makers wrote the guidelines themselves. Of course, that would be a ludicrous proposition. <laughs> right, which I'm sure has never happened. Never happened in the history, history of, medicine. of medicine. Yeah. Um, you touch on a very important point. There is something that happens in these rare hematologic conditions that will not happen in cardiology or oncology or other areas at large. Because what... What companies like Ablinx and now, which has now been purchased by Sanofi, the manufacturer of capitalism, what they can do is, it's such a small field. They can actually approach and kind of recruit, uh, for lack of a better word, practically all the big name experts yes. in that field yes. and have them already kind of ready to go and primed to, um, support the use of this drug. And, and support it to the FDA. For example, the FDA doesn't have expertise, intrinsic in, internal expertise in TTP. Uh, TTP. They have to refer out to you know, these expert committees, which it's quite practical for a company to, um, to recruit all the experts, like I said, in, in, in a small field like yes. this. And so what you see has happened is the FDA has approved – let me just first of all talk for a moment about the – before coming back to guidelines, just about the FDA yes. approval. Um, if you think about what FDA approval means, safety and efficacy – um, the FDA has to ask experts in that area for a recommendation as to whether the drug meets those criteria or not. And the reality is that, at least in my view, efficacy is almost certainly not there, at least not in a real way, because right. all it's doing is, is treating that number, increasing that platelet count. Um, there is, uh, and then safety, you know, we can debate, but, um, but the truth is that the patients in receiving capitalism in the randomized controlled trial data, which is the highest quality data we right. have, have much higher bleeding rates More and bleeding, severe. Yeah. Well, I'm talking mean, things that like you don't want to have, right? Like abdominal wall hematoma, hematemesis, hemoptysis, you know, uh, GI, upper GI hemorrhage, lower GI hemorrhage. In what, uh, they even had a case or two, I think, of, um, of intracranial hemorrhage that did not occur in the, um, in the, in the control uh, arm. Yeah. In the control arm. So, so these are things that, uh, um, 
you know, you have to ask yourself, well, how was safety really evaluated? Yes. How was efficacy really evaluated? Yes. Then coming back, I think to to the to the guidelines, um, what happened is very interesting. Um, the the Hercules trial define it talks about uh, capitalism of reducing recurrences of TTP. And you know what does that mean? Well, traditionally, if you and I talk about recurrence of a disease, we're talking about basically someone who's doing fine, who's cured after a, after a bout of the disease, yes. and then come back in with another episode, right? Yes. I mean, that's that's what most people would think of. Yes. However, yes. however, in TTP, it's extraordinarily common. Forty to fifty percent of patients with TTP will have what we call a recrudescence or an exacerbation of during primary, treatment with yes. plasma exchange, yes, yes. which during the after they've been in the hospital maybe only a couple of days, their play count will go up and then it'll start coming down. During the acute episode, it's extraordinarily common, it's clinically irrelevant, and it's something we treat through, uh, and it's just something that happens. And I never, you know, as a doctor who treats these patients, I never really thought much of it. Well, what um, what the um, the folks who, uh, uh, who kind of basically wrote the capitalism lab studies have done is they got together... Um, I believe it was a year or two before um, before the Hercules trial was published, and not at the bidding of any professional society or any you know or or, or the American Society of Hematology or anyone. They kind of came together and developed their own um, quote unquote consensus guidelines or consensus definitions for TTP. And within these consensus definitions, they actually lumped exacerbation, these routine exacerbations or recrudescences that happen with relapse under the umbrella of recurrence. I see. Right? So now recurrence is defined as either having a real recurrence, which is a relapse, or one of these routine exacerbations. And and once you have an endpoint that's called recurrence, you can with those two components in it, you can very easily say that TTP that capitalismab um uh, diminishes TTP recurrence, even though I think in any normal medical understanding of the term, it certainly doesn't. Oh, that's a terrific point. I did not. It's, it's a very interesting. I'm sorry, and I, I'm sorry for your listeners if that I got a little bit too into the weeds on that, but no. but it's a very important point for people to, who want to know about this field to understand. No, I'm just angry that I didn't. That was one thing that I've not picked up. So I read it really closely. We did a podcast on it a while back. That's a point I didn't pick up. That's a terrific I'll send you, point. I'll send you a paper. It's a JTH paper, consensus uh, a definition guideline, consensus definitions in TTP. Um, um, it's uh, it was published right about a year before Hercules, and that's the exact that's actually cited in the Hercules study for their uh, in their methods for, for their patients for for their um, for their study. So it's it's uh, it was almost tailored. Those definitions were almost tailor made to support Hercules. I see. So. So let me see how it plays into this. So in the secondary outcomes, they say during the overall trial period, during the 28-day follow-up in which patients were no longer receiving capocizumab or placebo, 12 patients in the capocizumab group as opposed to 28 patients in the placebo group had a recurrence of TTP, which is a lower rate of recurrence. All recurrences in the placebo group occurred within 30 days and all at the end of daily plasma. I see. So in other words, the difference that they're claiming may be simply due to the fact they're masking this well-observed phenomenon, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for people who've read these studies carefully, they're, uh, they have a composite uh, surrogate endpoint that, um, uh, well, let me put it this way, they have a composite endpoint that's driven almost entirely by a reduction in these clinically meaningless exacerbations. That's, yes. that's, uh, that's almost certainly the case. Once you look at uh, hard outcomes, like mortality or um, uh, 
or a relapse, um, people with capitalism aren't doing any better, or they might even be doing worse. Interesting. I think you made a number of great points. The point I want to echo is that, you know, there's a reason why the industry has shifted all its focuses to these rare diseases. You can develop a drug for a rare disease, hit a surrogate endpoint, and then pretty much buy your way through all the KOLs. And then you have a, you have both the product on the market and you can charge whatever you want. You can make a lot of money and insurers will have a hard time pushing back because the net budgetary impact of a TTP drug is not going to blow their wallet out. It's just going to be another sort of line item on the big budget. Um, so there really is very little downward pressure to regulate these rare disease spaces. Absolutely. And I think, to be honest, I think that, and I, 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 you know, I've been very uh, honest and vocal about this. I think that the cost, the, the set price for this agent is embarrassing. Yeah. It, the, I think we should talk about that for a moment because really the, the, the price they set at two, it's, it's about $7,800 per daily injection, per daily dose. And, um, it comes out to be for, for a 30 day course about $270,000. The Hercules study actually, uh, uh, trial actually studied people up to 56 days. So you're talking $450,000 for a disease for which there is a curative treatment with standard of care currently. Uh, it, it's a no brainer to, to, to question the cost effectiveness of this approach. And in fact, we just actually yes. have a, had a manuscript. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. We had a manuscript. Uh, recently accepted uh, for publication in which we analyzed the cost effectiveness um, of capitalism relative to standard of care. And um, I, I just want to, without boring you no, too no, much about on. it, I mean, you know, it basically found that capitalism would have to be more than 85, 80% cheaper than it is for it to be even marginally cost effective. And this is in a study where we were really stacking the deck. We really use a very conservative uh, set of assumptions to try to stack the deck in favor of capitalism. And also, by the way, I just want to acknowledge my colleague at Yale, uh, who's really spearheaded a lot of this work, George Joshua, who's really done a wonderful job with this analysis. Yes. But, you know, at the end of the day, as George and I actually joke sometimes, it, he's kind of like using a scientific method to show, to prove to people the sky's blue. Right. It's like, it's not really that surprising <laughs> yeah. that, like I said, a drug costing $270,000 to $450,000 per patient in a disease that is curable now yeah. with current standard of care might not be cost effective. Right, That's right. not really a surprise. And, um, and so we've really had, um, uh, we've really had a lot of trouble, I think, uh, um, justifying the use of this agent. Um, I would also say that the, when, when you look at, and as, as I said, we use very conservative assumptions and stack the deck in favor yes. of capitalismab, uh, in this study, in our, in our analysis. In fact, we don't even account for in the costs. We account for none of the costs that are associated with increased bleeding from capitalism. That, for I example. see. I so see. So if you have, if you need a, a, a scope or you know an operation because you're bleeding, yes, uh, um, internally or have a GI bleed from you're from not adding that in. That's not added, and those rates are extraordinarily high. So um, and you're giving yeah. them some. I mean, you're you're attributing some quality benefit, quality adjusted life, your benefit to the drug that they have not yet even proven. So you're giving them that benefit right. too. How many qualities right, right. do you give the drug? Um, you know, I have to actually look back sure. at the exact number, but the, but the um, the ICER is something like one point five million dollars. Oh, per quality. I see. So so so, so, so you know, so you, you know, must with be willing to pay sure. of less than two of one hundred ninety five thousand bucks. Yeah, get out of here. This is already like. Six times more than almost seven times, seven times more uh, expensive than it should be. Again, 
if anything, it's going to be the ISO is going to be even higher. I know that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, yeah. yeah, it's at least, yeah. I think, I think the real ISER, it, it might be in the ten mil, hundred mil. I mean, if it doesn't, <laughs> if it doesn't actually improve quality or quantity of life, it might be infinite. You know, so it's so yours True. is the lower bound ISER of one, and that tells you that this drug is horrendously priced. It's criminally priced. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know we're seeing a lot of that now. At least I I I, I know you guys see it in Ankh too, but sure. on the benign heme side, we're seeing that more and more. There's another drug, you know, the porcine factor eight, oh, yes. uh, which is used in people who Obezor. have uh, Obezor. Obezor, exactly. Obezor. They they use that drug at four dollars and fifty cents a unit. So basically, if you if you take a seventy kilogram person and you want to treat them, it's like sixty five thousand dollars per infusion for the first dose. It's sixty five thousand dollars. So that's a lousy drug. Uh, I mean, the data for the, drug where the yeah. standard of care treatment that works. <laughs> yeah, Obizor, and also, um, I mean, what's the data for that? That's even like even more flimsy than than uh, than Hercules. It's it's it's. it's it, I mean, there, there's there's no there's good, no good real yeah. Reason, it's just in all, my opinion. It's all um, logic and yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had a we we yeah, I remember you had a refractory you know, with tons of inhibitors and you had to give it exactly. It yeah, have to it would have yeah. to be like last you know yeah, third last line ish, or hemophilic with yeah. tons of inhibitors. I think the other situation that we run into is my good folks, the good folks at Ecolizumab who want to put the Ecolizumab in my breakfast sandwich. They're like, oh, did you see our new? There's a new case series of four people with uh, yeah. post transplant TMA and they did well with Ecolizumab. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. And and the Ecolizumab has been extremely aggressively marketed uh, uh, for off-label use. But let me say one thing. In yes. Record, and, and you may be surprised when you say this. I actually like Eclizumab because for the only reason that it actually does something. It does work in PNH. <laughs> the, 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 the drug does something that we don't have another drug to do right now. And okay. if you have one of these complement-mediated conditions, PNH, uh, atypical HUS, I've actually used it in um, very severe cases of um, autoimmune hemolysis. Uh, and, and gotten good results. At least the, you're paying a ton of money, but the drug does something. We can have a debate all day about you know pricing, drug pricing. But I think we, everyone can agree if the drug doesn't do anything, it like should, yeah. that, it should be priced. There's no reason to price it like that high. Uh, and so I think that's where my concern is. Is I'm just trying to keep it very limited and just say, hey, you know, um, we all should agree that drugs that don't do much should not command that kind of pricing. Um, and it, honestly, I would be embarrassed. I would be embarrassed to uh, try to market a drug at that, with that price, like capitalism at that price. I think that's well put. Even in today's polarized world, I hope that everyone can agree: if the drug doesn't make people live longer, live better, we should not be paying two hundred grand for right. one month's supply of it. Now, the people, I, just just to, for you know, to just to um, be uh, you know, keep us all honest, sure. the people who uh, market and sell capitalism would claim. That um, plasma exchange is a condition that requires a, a central line to be put into the patient. Yes, yes. And that can be associated with complications. And paresis can be associated with complications too. Mostly allergic. Our data, uh, which we published uh, last year, suggests you know, it's mostly allergic reactions that people get. Um, uh, but occasionally there can be more severe. Very rarely there can be more severe reactions. Um, but but they would argue that they're preventing that from happening because capsizumab can be doesn't need a, doesn't need a line. Doesn't need line placement to, to go in, but I would I would argue you know that's a pretty um, that's a pretty marginal benefit, yes. particularly when you factor in the bleeding complications. Yes. And, you know, and also that they're not off. They're, they're not selling this drug in lieu of Plex. It's in addition oh, exactly. to Plex, right? right, right exactly. yeah, it's in addition that's to Plex. Sorry. So, I, I, so yeah, I, it's I, just the delta of like one extra day or two extra days of Plex. You 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 hit the nail on the head. Sorry, I, I should have mentioned the point. They even in their own protocols yeah. it requires the line to be placed and people to get yeah. plasma exchange. Yeah. It actually so in the in the in the Hercules trial um, the average number of, of exchange exchange treatments was like five. 
So they're still getting five exchanges, right. which is probably not even not enough because they're relapsing. I know they're that, all, that's a lot of them are relapsing. Yes, so, that's the real problem. And, yeah. And then and then there's the, there's been this much um, kind of talked about um, study out of Germany, this uh, where they took 60 patients with GTP and treated them with capitalism. It's called a real world experience. That's how they build it. Mm-hmm. And and what's amazing is in that experience, which they build as uh, the authors conclude. By the way, highly conflicted author line about you know about. Uh, First and last author both receiving money from Sanofi and, and that kind of thing, but 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 they bill it as um, uh, oh this real world experience, and their conclusion is that all patients it should be standard of care in all patients to give them capitalizumab wow. uh, up front in wow. GTP. But but what they found in that study, which is amazing, is that they actually had to use I think ten or twelve pharesis treatments in that in those patients. Uh, they got uh, uh, um, maybe it was nine nine pharesis ex- exchange treatments, which is uh, in our in our system, the average is like 11. I so see. they're yeah. barely changing yes, that number. Right, right. And their hospital length of stay was 18 days. Ooh, 18 whereas days. in, our, in wow. our data, it's it's only 12. Yes. So they're actually so extending it's actually, the stay to give the capitalism. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's unclear what's so, going on. So, you know, these uncontrolled studies of 60 people, when I trained, we used to call those shitty studies now they call it real world evidence so it's just, right, a, lot right, exactly, yeah. a lot has changed a lot has changed a lot has changed a lot of and power this branding is, this, is what, this is what we're dealing with you know yes. and and i think um but there's a lot of money uh, at stake as you know and i and then and people will um uh people will push this drug i think as long as um they think they can make a lot of money out. yeah so i guess i think our time has run out so i guess last word my last my last two cents on this drug is and and then i'll take i'll take your last two cents and you may disagree with me um I, I don't I just don't think it has a use. I mean, I, I just do what we were doing before. And until there's some new data that changes me, I'm not going to use it. I think some people pushed me and they said, well, what about like a Jehovah's Witness patient who comes in with TTP? And I was like, yeah, I was like, I guess. Or like if the asteroid is coming at the Earth and going to hit the Earth. And I mean, like, OK, there's scenarios where, OK, maybe I'll give a capitalismab dose or here or there. Um, I don't know about you. So where, where are you going to use yeah, it if at I all? Mean, I mean, I think I think there are two. Um, I think there there are only two situations where you know um, I would use capitalismab. One is maybe three. One is in um, as a temporizing measure, possibly, possibly as a temporizing measure. If you for some reason cannot give FFP, the patient is allergic, anaphylactic, I see. and and they, you don't have exphoresis available. You can't plex. This is a th- yes, I see. Right, this right, is a right, third okay. line. It's a third line temporizing measure. That's, yeah. that's number one. Okay. And or you know or of course if like you know. COVID mutated and like wiped out all the freezes. Tech- well, I would actually say, let me add, let me add to your hierarchy. Uh, so, so one Plex, two FFP, uh, three call them an Uber and four capitalism So it's the four, right. <laughs> fourth temporizing measure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it would be cheaper. It literally would be cheaper yeah. for you to chopper. Chopper. Most of these yeah, of course. Yeah. From, from rural Massachusetts where I am yes. or where, or, or rural, rural New England to Mass General yes. to get free. To chopper to them. And they get the difference in price, which is probably another fifty grand in their pocket. The chopper yeah. ride and a little bonus. Yeah, they get yeah, to ride a helicopter. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, helicopter. And, and then and get, so yeah. so so that's 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 one that's one. Another would be in highly refractory cases yeah, okay. that we just cannot yes. get out of the hospital. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, we sometimes every very rarely will have cases where people are freezed for three, four, oh, well, four, five, six weeks. But even then, yeah, I give rituxin. Um, I would give them rituxin and steroids, yeah, and maybe give them, them some vinca. Yeah. We're giving the rituxan. Yes, you're absolutely. We're, we're moving up the chain in terms of um, uh, autoantibody treatment. But but basically, you know, they even then you can put in ton of line and do outpatient phoresis. We actually do that not sure, as frequently. They do get to go home. They have to come in yes. every other day or yeah, whatever. But, but it's like dialysis. Uh, yeah. But yeah. yeah. So so it's not ideal. I get that. So that's another case maybe. Um, and um, 
the, the, the final thing I think is in just in, um, ultra refractory cases where patients are, are deteriorating on, uh, on exchange. But that is, you already have to start exchange to see that. You need to use exchange up front. And those cases are exceedingly rare. Yes. I mean, like, like low single digit percents in a disease that is extremely rare. So it's hard to know what the real role of this, uh, this agent is. And at the cost it currently that it's, it's, I think it's hard to justify. That's well put. Uh, Dr. Ben Deputy, thank you so much for joining us about this drug that um, it, it makes me get an aneurysm in my head when I was reading about <laughs> it. And, uh, and I think you taught me a couple of things I didn't know. So I'm really grateful to you. Thanks so much for doing it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.